It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Sporting Capital with Sam Hargraves on SEN. What's happened to footy rivalries? We were just talking about in the last hour. We might dig a little deeper into that. And Max Lawton's back with his Pythagorean theory about the sliders and movers on the AFL ladder. Yes, indeed. Sporting Capital on a Thursday night. one 736 736 is the number to give me a call at any point of the night. 0433981116 is the Temper text line. Temper, a mattress like no other. Every year on Fox Sports, Max Lawton, who does a ripping job uh, on the Fox Sports website and is one of the really astute number crunches. He goes very deep into the numbers, the analytics, the stats, of AFL football, and he uses a mathematical equation that is used predominantly in baseball in the US, and he's been doing it now for, I reckon, about six or seven years where he applies this formula to the AFL ladder ahead of each season on last year's ladder to predict this year's ladder. Now, of the teams that he's focused on in the last few years, 14 out of 17 have gone exactly the way that his calculations have predicted. So we'll explain that all to you. Last year we did this, and for some reason it got some people very upset. People got very angry about it, thought it was absolute rubbish, whereas others said, okay, I'm going to follow this bloke in the tipping. He's won the last three, I think, into office tipping competitions at Fox Sports using this theory. It's a moneyball theory. It's uh, it, In the article that was on Monday, Pythagorean if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm always fascinated by this chat because we go back and look at it at the end of the season just to see how Max has gone. So he's going to join us, and you can give me your big movers and big sliders, up or down the AFL ladder from this year, and tell me why. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Before we finished up on the Maccas run a little earlier, actually, before I get to that, later on in the show, 8.30, Mitch Norton to join me from the Perth Wildcats. Their captain, Jesse Wagstaff, plays his 400th game this weekend, Saturday night, John Kane Arena, the old rivals, Melbourne United. It's, uh, it's a big night for the Perth Wildcats, and they'll head home after that. So Mitch Norton will join me to have a chat to, about that game, what it means to the club. They've had their 40-year 40, 40 anniversary starting five picked. Um, and their team of the last 40 years uh, had, a, had been a fantastic um, little side piece of the NBL season following that along. So Mitch Norton to join me as well. And then in the last hour of the show, we're going to turn our attention to the Super Bowl. No show for me tomorrow night. So Monday, Super Bowl, LA Rams, Cincinnati Bengals in LA. We're going to go to Cincinnati. Um, 
We're going to go to Cincinnati, and uh, and then we're going to so we'll focus in on Cincinnati with George Vogel, and then we're going to speak to a man who you will know very well, John Anderson, who hosts sport who hosts Sports Center on ESPN, eleven to one every night. He's going to join us to focus in on the LA side of the equation. One three hundred seven three six seven three six zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. So a big night. Uh, on the sporting capital, but not made complete without uh, your calls as well. Before we started this show, a little earlier, uh, I played you some audio of Taylor Jaray on the run home with Andy and Gazy a little earlier on. Um, I'm going to play it for you again because it, it got me thinking about how we promote and how we pump up rivalries in AFL. And are... The rivalry's dwindling just a little bit. Players very careful these days to, to make sure that they mind their P's and Q's. That the whole idea is don't give an opposition team any ammunition. Don't be the article. Don't be the quote that the coach puts up on the whiteboard in the locker room before the game to say, these so-and-so said this about us, so let's go out there uh, and get stuck into them. Nick Robertson did it uh, with the Brisbane Lions a few years ago when he spoke about how much they didn't like the Gold Coast Suns. Uh, that didn't go down well. Uh, with Chris Fagan, but it did make for a really interesting build-up uh, to that game. Uh, before I get to that, Tony in Craigieburn's been waiting really patiently. So um, it got me thinking, why why don't we take a little more leaf, a little more of a leaf out of the books of boxing, WWE, UFC, and allow the players to really pump up the rivalries? I, you'll hear from Taylor Duray in just a minute. But by the time he'd finished, you could tell exactly what he thought uh, about the D's and about that rivalry. And I think it's great. I want to see more of it. I'd love players to be able to get up and say, yeah, we really don't like these blokes. Um, and here's why. I would love, and I think the AFL secretly absolutely love it when that happens because it just adds spice. It just uh, it gives another little um, story and a narrative going in. We're competing for the entertainment dollar these days. So if you can help sell a contest, sell a game, then you are helping the AFL out in no uncertain terms. Uh, Tony's in Craigieburn. G'day, Tony. Yeah, g'day, Sammy. Look, I'm, I'm going to probably be, be a bit of a, um, a needle in your bubble here. That's okay. I, I'm, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to think if somebody needs, if a team needs motivation to do well in a grand final replay, mm. then um, over a song or a, or a pub incident, then I've got a feeling that they may be starting behind the eight ball. I don't, I don't think that the Demons would give two hoots about um, a song or an incident happened in the bar last year or whatever. Um, and really, it's it's been known that that inspirational little short burst of um, motivation probably only gets you through the first quarter. And then you may have, unfortunately, what tends to happen is you you waste a lot of energy in that first quarter. Mm-hmm. And the team that the team that went in there with probably cool heads or calm heads and really didn't you know couldn't care less about what happened in the past uh, tends to be the team that gets up and wins anyway. So I I'm a little bit of old, old school. I know, and I'll give you another example of it, Sammy. Mm-hmm. Um, 1990 Grand Final quarter time, which you know, it was the prize that sort of settled after quarter time. Um, although the and the Essendon guys that still went still played the man. And still, you know, fired up and got aggressive and all that sort of stuff. That second quarter cost him that grand final, Sammy. And um, you know, it was the pies through Lee Matthews who had the calmer heads that actually got up. So 
I'm I'm just going to go the other way, and I'm going to think that um, if the, the doggies really need to go in there with with calm, cool heads, forget about last year, and just just go for it for this year. There's not a lot I can argue with about that, Tony. But all I'll say is that, and you make brilliant points, very salient points. And given the professional nature of the game as well, and and how it's all very much, you know. I, I always bring this up, but I remember the, the Storm players, I think Cam Smith spoke about it, when they got Alistair Clarkson to come and speak to them. And he said, how do you make sure you win? And, they, and someone asked, how do you make sure you win every week? And he said, I don't. I've got no control over that. All I have control of is process and preparation. Oh, no, attitude and preparation is what he said. So I get that you need to be, you know, very measured um, and very calculated when you come in, know what your role is, stick to the game plan, all that kind of stuff. I'm purely thinking of this from a broadcasting point of view and a voyeuristic point of view that I think it adds just another element to our great game. And we are in the entertainment industry now where you are competing more than ever before against other sports, other interests. Um, you know, people's time is is much more... It's harder to get. So where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your hard-earned money? I, I think those kind of things where we pump up a rivalry like we used to with Sheeds used to do it better than anybody. We don't have that theatre anymore. That's all very vanilla. So I loved hearing Taylor Dre just to reveal a little bit. Is there room for theatre, Tony? Um, yeah, I suppose to an extent. There's always going to be some sort of thing that pops up. I mean... Look at look at the Wayne Carey you know, playing against North Melbourne. I mean that was that was built up a lot. Um, when Gary Ablett first played for the Suns against Geelong, that was built up a lot. Yep. Adam Trelaw, I think it was last year against the Pies, round one. You know his first game against against the Pies, that was also um, one of the ones that was brought up. I mean it, it's always going to be there, but I, I just think you got to as long as you don't lose sight and focus on the ball, and you know you you just don't go in there too. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pie supporter, so it doesn't really worry me what the Bulldogs or Demons do. But mm. I just, well, I just know, I just know from experience and from watching the, you know, uh, football, not just my team, but other teams as well. If the theatre is good, but the theatre only gets you through the first quarter. No one, once the game starts and once the, um, you know, once you're yeah. going, that theatre goes out the window and it's and it's game on. And I just, I'm just a bit wary of teams going in there. With with preconceived ideas, that this I, is I get that. Do. I, I absolutely get that, Tony. But I, I suppose, for, as a Collingwood man, let me ask you this: Do you feel like the Carlton Collingwood rivalry is anywhere near as intense? And I know a lot of that's due to obviously that at, when they were both, you know, both power clubs of the VFL, and there was, you know, there's premiership contests that helped build that rivalry, and they haven't been able to meet in a final, let alone a premiership for. I can't even remember when. But do you feel like that rivalry has waned? Do you think that holds the the appeal and the vigour and the venom that it once used to? Oh, look, you, you're probably talking to the, the wrong person when it comes to Carlton Collingwood <laughs> um, because um, I'm 100% hate. I don't, I don't even oh, – I'm not sure I said that word just then, but we don't even say that <laughs> word in in my house. I, my, my kids know that they're banned from saying – we, we call it the C word. I know the C word's an, oh, another, another yes, naughty word. That's but, okay. Yep. But, no, but we, we, say the C, we say the C word is in um, – the team that wears that ridiculous navy blue jumper with sure. that white insignia on the front. Yeah. Um, so my kids know never to mention that name in, in my house. And if um, and uh, all my friends, is, we have a good rivalry because um, a lot of my family um, are Carlton supporters and yep. 
and that's sort of half half, I guess. We did have some Essendon and Richmond as well, but um, no, no. For, for me personally, I can't stand them. And for me, there's always going to be we always when you always get that fixture in the you know in the start of this or end of last year, you always see where you mm. where you're going to play those those uh, you know, question marks. And um, for me, it's game on. It doesn't matter how Beautiful. good they are or how bad how bad we are or how bad they are. It's nothing better than than beating that that um, that Carlton scum, mate. To be honest. <laughs> oh no! Oh, you're going to get me in trouble now. Hey, Tony, always great to chat to you. Thanks so much for calling in. Lovely show, Sammy. All the best. You good man. Uh, although he might have upset the beautiful Evie at home. Oh no, actually, because uh, he he wouldn't have upset. He would have the beautiful Evie at home would be absolutely loving that given that she's a dyed in the wool Collingwood fan uh, as well. So she'll be cheering you on um, vigorously. Uh, Mark in Bacchus Marsh. G'day, Mark. Sam, my man. How you going? Good. Sounds like you're having fun like usual. Well, I've got, I'm lucky enough to have my dream job, to be able to sit here and speak to you and, and talk about sport. And for me, sport is always first and foremost about the fun in it. I know that it's billions of dollars. I know that it's people's livelihoods. I know that there's passion around it. But at the end of the day, it's got to be fun, doesn't it? Well, you get to listen and then read on text about all these conspiracy theories out there as well. (laughs) Uh, We love it all. We love it all. What do you got for me? Well, well, well. Um, I almost said New South Wales take over cricket just quietly. And uh, I'll... Tim Payne got the flick for New South Wales boys Cummins, and uh, the same's happened to Langer, but we'll move on from that. <laughs> now, movers and shakers. You know I'm a doggy supporter. Yes. Second to first. Don't worry, it's in the bag, so we'll just call it. We'll move on from that. Now. Well, would that be fifth to first? I mean, I, I, I had this argument with Pickers where he said, no, 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 it's once the, the, once the whole season's finished, then we, then we, you know, if you come runner-up in the grand final, then you finish second. Yeah. So I, 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 I was regular season ladder though. You're saying they'll go from fifth to first and win a premiership. No, see, I'm on pick. I'm, I'm programmed the same as pickers. So I'm on with second to go to first. So okay, yeah. But I see your argument as well. It's a matter of perspective, I suppose. Um, now, so leave, leave the going up team till the end. I've done a little bit of work on this, by the way. The team I reckon is going to go down is Geelong. Yeah. Their oldies have just gotten up another year older, the old man brigade. I don't really reckon they've recruited that well this time around. And I think there are only a couple of injuries away from nowhere. I think Rowan Myers actually gives them a lot more grunt through the middle than people realise, and he's hurt his ankle again with the syndemosis, and I reckon that really hurts him. And if they lose old mate down the back end, is it Stewart? Yeah, he, Tom Stewart. Yeah. I reckon just them two players, Myers gives them the drive, and if you, if you lose Stewart again, and then you, you've got the freak who never gets injured, but he's due, and that's Tom Hawkins. They're only a couple of injuries away from finishing bottom four, I reckon. But anyway. Um, the other thing about yeah, Geelong too, which worries me, is that for the first time in several years, if you go back and have a look at it, their defence was still a top four ranked defence, but they came they they weren't a top four side for scoring. They were seventh in the comp for scoring last year, and that concerns me. Given they recruited Jeremy Cameron, he didn't play the whole season. He played fifteen games though, and the fact that they went from a, a top four scoring side to seventh, that worried me with the style that that, that they played. So yeah, I think there's some concerns there. Uh, keep going. 
That's because they're getting pumped in the midfield. That's why. So the ball not coming in. Good point. Um, yeah, the engine room supplies the forward line. The engine room's getting beat. He's not going to score as well. Doesn't matter how many. Mate, you're going to have Dunstall lock at Brereton from the 80s, mate. <laughs> the ball ain't getting there. It doesn't matter. They ain't kicking it. So, yeah. Anyway, that's the end. Yeah, so it's their midfield that yep. I see. I think three-quarters shot. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's where teams are going to get them, through the middle. And that's going, they're going to choke them for supply anyway going forward, no matter how many guns Geelong might have down there. Um now, the team going up, right? doing my little bit of research, believe it or not, and this team needs as many supporters as they can get to a club. So, North Melbourne. How far, are they, actually, how far are they going up, Mark? Get this right. If you, and what I need you to do is, if you can bring up on AFL.com the draw, which I have in front of me and done. Yeah, just, just punch it out for me, Mark. I've just got a couple that are right. just four trying to jump four. on. Okay, okay, I'll hustle it up. So four, I've got them at four and four after the first day. And if they're lucky, they might turn five and five. But it's there after the round 10, round 11 to the end of the season. Mate, I've got them nearly as, as many as potentially nine more wins. The back half of the season opens up for them. They get Gold Coast twice. They get Adelaide Crows twice. Um, they get a whole heap of teams that are more than beatable in the back half of the season. So if they can turn five and five or even four and six at, at round 10, then, you know, I think they, they're just about there. They're at least 10 wins this year, if not 11. That's knocking on the door at 11, if not in. Um I think they're a good thing. I think they're two and zero after the first two. I think they beat Hawthorne, and I think they win round two. Mark, you've in put the, a lot. You've put a lot of work into this, mate, and I greatly appreciate it. And I will absolutely be keeping an eye on North Melbourne because I love what it looks like they're building under Dave Noble, mate. You could be onto something there. Thank you so much for the call, mate. Always great to chat. Mate, it forced me with you. You do. Mark in Marsh. Hey, John, uh, stay right there. I'm going to come straight to you on the other side of this. Uh, This is the Sporting Capital. 1300 736 736 is the number to get involved at any point. Your movers and sliders and rivalries. Are we doing enough? Are Are we... Are we muzzling the players from telling us what they really think about the teams that they're coming up against? one 736 Sporting Capital, SEN. We had the time. Uh, Max Lawton from Fox Sports to join me in just a moment. His Moneyball Theory, which he writes each year on which teams will rise and fall in 2022. His Pythagorean equation that he uh, utilises. It comes from uh, baseball and he deploys it to great success uh, when it comes to AFL. So looking forward to catching up with Max in just a moment. Felix off the text, just double checking some information uh, on this, but uh, hopefully this is correct. Uh, Felix saying there is a fire opposite Mount Martha Village Shopping Centre. Traffic block travelling north, three three fire engines in attendance. We'll get some more info on that, but Felix, thanks for that uh, public service announcement that you've sent through there, mate. We really Really appreciate it. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. 736 736 Rivalries. Taylor Jure, go and have a listen to it. SEN.com.au. Spoke to the run home, Andy and Gazy, a little earlier on and played a straight bat when it came to the rivalry with Melbourne. Made a little joke saying, oh, they were just jealous that Bailey Smith had, you know, was more popular and had more fans around him and it was all good fun. 
But then when the question about the song came and then just saying, yeah, well, I've, we just always thought that we were taught how to win, you know, with um, win with good grace and lose, win with humility and lose with grace and all that kind of stuff. And just to, started to play a few shots at the end. And now I love that. I, I want to say, I want to hear more of that. I'd love the players to be honest about, yeah, we can't stand these blokes. So we get, yeah, we've really, we've penciled that one in. Look for, that'll be, an in, we will be going after them. Obviously not uh, in anything untoward or, you know, overtly violent, but certainly a real, a real spirited encounter. Um, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Do we need to be selling these rivalries a little better than what we currently are? Players get in trouble for saying that kind of stuff because coaches don't want them to give the other side any ammunition. But as fans uh, and as broadcasters, I think we absolutely love it. But give me your thoughts. One three hundred seven three six seven three six. John in Greensboro. G'day, mate. Thank you, Sammy. I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around your previous caller, actually. I think you had him down for 15 wins, so gee, it sounds like the top four finish for North here. But, uh, I think, anyway, yeah. some of us... Sorry, Sammy, go ahead. No, no, you go for it. Go for it, John. Yeah, um, but anyway, I think he's more uh, misty optic than optimistic, but um, we'll, oh, we'll move on to... I the love him. Comedyisms. More of those, please. Now, Sammy, in, in relation to um, rivalries, look, always room for a little bit of theatre, as mm. long as we don't go down the track of uh, you know, the UFC type where we start to trash talk. But definitely, and I think if you're trying to create new rivalries, you've got to put on a little bit of a show. Mm. Um, and in, re- in regards to the old rivalries, look, I've got to disagree with you a little bit with that because I think you're, you're, you're trying to say that the, the Carlton calling was a rivalry is not what it used to be. Um, it, it'll always be there, Sammy, because that is passed down through generations, and every generation just comes back that little bit harder. The, the reason it hasn't been as prominent yeah. is because because the blue baggers have been too busy collecting wooden spoons. But <laughs> now they're on there. You're going to get me in trouble yeah. with Margaret, John. I'm going to. I'm already having people say, Sam, Margaret's going to be upset with you. She already gets upset with me when I uh, am a little bit overcritical of Carlton, and I do not want to upset the first lady of SEN anymore. But so, John, what you're telling me is in the stands, the rivalry is still as good as ever, but on the field, it's, it's waned. Yeah, look, yeah, on the field, look, probably I reckon it becomes pretty strong on the field once both teams are actually going through success. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit harder to, to work up if one team's on, on, you know, if they're on the wrong side of the ladder. So yeah. I think the rivalry on the field is created through continuous um, close matches and so on. So, um, but, you know, overall, though, um, to make uh, the point, I, I think we need a little bit of a show. We, we yeah. you know, we've got enough conformity. Um, let's just put on a little bit of a show, I think. I love it, John. We're bums on seats, eyes on screens. Uh, that's what it's all about. Just a little bit more theatre from the clubs. Let the players have a little bit to talk about. Pump up those rivalries. Say what you want about Jeff Kennett. And I have been critical of Jeff Kennett in, in, over the last year for what's unfolded at Hawthorne in, in that time with Alistair Clarkson, Sam Mitchell, everything like that. But one of the many, many good things that he has done in his time at Hawthorne and, and that can never be forgotten, is the Kennett curse and the Geelong-Hawthorne rivalry is what it is because of the Kennett curse uh, and his role in establishing the Kennett curse. So, I mean, I do get my heart in my mouth whenever I see the email in my, in my inbox saying uh, an email from your president. 
But that was a masterstroke because it now is one of the best rivalries in modern footy, Hawthorne and Geelong. I think Adelaide, Port Adelaide is one of the best rivalries in the game at the moment. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Justin in Coburg. G'day, mate. Hey, how are you, mate? Good, mate. What do you got for me? Rivalries. Uh, well, this is probably one of the biggest rivalries in probably history is New South Wales v Queensland in the state of origin. Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, every time they play, it's always me against my mum. Okay. So it's sort well, of that, like a rivalry. Yeah. The, the great thing, and thank you for the call, Justin, um, the great thing about that, and that's what you're, you're talking about actually lends itself to my point. They sell it. They absolutely sell that rivalry, don't they? Queensland and New South Wales, they give each other a pasting in the build-up to that. Paul Gallen has played the villain over many, many years. And I, I think Corey Parker was in an article today who um, is a, a former Queensland origin great talked about the fact that he hates the fact that it looks like the players are too chummy over the last few Origin series. He wants them to go back to hating, you know, mate versus mate, state against state. They do it brilliantly in the state of Origin because they do take pot shots at each other in the build-up to it. Uh, Brendan's in Camberwell. G'day, Brendan. Uh, good afternoon. How are you? Uh, very well, thank you. That's good. Uh, yeah, Richmond Carlton. Yeah, That's, 80s, I, I early 80s. Late seventies, late oh, early eighties. Oh yeah, definitely. But um, I, I was lucky enough. I'd say oh, it's probably twenty years ago now. I was sitting with um Tommy Hafey at a sportsman's night, mm. and um he got up and and, and had his speech. Mm. And uh, the way he spoke about how uh, Carlton beat us in the nineteen seventy two grand final, where was like 180 to 150 or something like that. And he never got over it. And me sitting there listening to him like, I hate these pricks now. Yeah, so it goes back to, It <laughs> goes back longer, doesn't it? I mean, I've only been alive since 81, but it, it does, for, for, for his generation, there was, I mean, and that's the culmination too, isn't it, of playing finals against each other and, and grand finals against each other. Yeah, and uh, like, a little bit older than you, uh, young man. Um, <laughs> I just, whenever I went to a footy game that had Carlton in it, I'm like, how dare you? This is, you know, this was my, like a, a lovely, lovely man. Mm. And hey, how dare you make him feel like that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brennan, yeah, so I've hated, I've hated him ever since. Well, see, and now that's you bringing up Richmond Carlton. I copped a bit of flack last year when I talked about the fact that I don't understand why I think it's lazy scheduling that Richmond and Carlton just are the opening game of the season. And I talked about the fact that there's no, for me, in my lifetime, there's never been that much of an established rivalry. I mean, uh, the early 80s, yes, but it, it's there's nothing mentioned about any of that in, in the build-up. You know, it's not like these two teams played in the first VFA game or the first VFL game. Carlton did, but Richmond didn't. Um, and then it was Carlton and Sydney in the first AFL game under the AFL banner. So I never understood, and I still don't really understand, just because they're, you know, two of the traditional big four clubs, that that's why we open the season. But if you really, from what you're saying, you know, we, that's the stuff that we should be tapping into in the build-up to that game. Because it's, I think it's just lazy scheduling to say, oh, it's Richmond and Carlton and that'll just do for round one and we'll go from there. But if you really want to hype it up, go back through that history 
and make that a part of the build-up to it if we have to have Carlton and Richmond uh, in the opening game of the season. So I'm glad you brought that up, Brendan. Greatly appreciate it. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. 736 Muzza, stay right there. Aiden, who just dropped out, give us a call back. Um, and we'll continue this rivalry chat before Max Lawton joins us to talk uh, Moneyball. His rises, rises and fallers. Which teams will rise and fall in this season based on uh, his mathematical equation? We'll do that shortly on the Sporting Capital, SEN. We're talking rivalries on the Sporting Capital. It just jumped into my mind listening to Taylor Geray speak to the run home, Andy and Gazy, earlier today. And this rivalry that's just starting to build and there is a little genuine uh, animosity. There is a genuine um, dislike at the moment between the D's and the dogs uh, from what we're hearing both uh, on the record and off the record, but which is a great thing for footy. That's not a crack at either of those two sides. I think they are great for football, old rivalries, new rivalries. And do we do enough to sell rivalries? We used to have a rivalry round, um, but now that we're you know trying to make sure and players have to mind their P's and Q's and don't be saying stuff about another team that could come back to bite us on the bum. I wonder if we're doing a good enough job of selling the sizzle um, of the rivalries. We're in the entertainment business and these things, rivalries are felt deeply by We're hearing people, I'm, I'm saying that on-field Carlton Collingwood is, it's, it's a non-event in terms of the rivalry. But in the stands, you're telling me that it's absolutely alive and well, which is great. But if only we built it up a little bit more, the clubs played that part in it as well. And just getting your thoughts, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Muzz are in Geelong. Hello, Muzz. Hello. You've never sat in the stand at a Richmond cheer squad end with a Carlton beanie on, obviously. Uh, um, no. I <laughs> That's very I specific. But no, I haven't, Muzz. I unfortunately, my sister, every year we go to the first game with my great niece and nephew. Great. And their dad, yep. who are Richmond. That's beautiful. And I'm Carlton. Um, and the way they turn on themselves when Carlton get closer and then Carlton hit the front and, you know, um, saying, like, oh, it's only Carlton, kill them. And, you know, they're only kids and we'll run over them and. So, Mother, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I turned 60 in September this year. So you, And the reason we have rivalries, if I can explain, in in the early 70s and late 60s, Carlton, Collingwood, Richmond and Essendon are why we have this great game because those four clubs had the most following. So every time they played each other, you would get... 90,000 people to the football. Mm. And in the 70s and the 80s or 60s and 70s, that's where the VFL made their money and where they put it aside. So two years ago when we had COVID and they had this surplus, that's where the surplus started from many years ago. You, you, you also... Know, the rivalry is like, like you could go to a Carlton Collingwood game at Victoria Park and there'd be 40,000 there and you couldn't get in. So you'd, you'd sit outside with a pocket tranny or at the railway station and you could still follow every move and go with every kick and mark because you could hear it all with the crowd. The, and the other thing too at that time, was that between you, you guys played each other in, in grand finals, 69, 73, 72, yes. 82. Um, so yes. obviously there was 10, you know, nine years between 73 and 82, but that little period of time, 69, 72, 73, that's what rivalries are built on. And 
as I was saying, I'm born in 81, so I was only alive for the 82. And, yep, you go back and look through your history and, and, and rivalries are there, but we don't do anything in the in regards to selling that that rivalry from that time when if we're going to have to, if we have to have Carlton and Richmond on a Thursday to start the season, okay then, but but let's, let's pump that up a little bit more. Let's have an explanation as well, to why this I is explain, a, this is a feature game. Could I explain why I follow Carlton? Absolutely. I, at, at the present time when I was 11, which was 1973, um, my older brother, Mark, who's deceased, took me to Carlton and Richmond, and I used to bury for whoever was on top of the ladder, and he used to get angry with me. Yes, said, fair enough. You, you have to pick a team. Yep. And I said, whoever wins today, I will bury them for the rest of my life. Carlton won by six goals. I went home with a Valua uh, cap and a flogger, and we had an open fire, and I'll clean this up. My father took it off my head and he was going to put it in the fire. And I said, what happened to freedom of speech? And he said, <laughs> yeah, but not when it's football following. I said, rubbish, it is now. <laughs> so I, I created rivalry in my own home by being the dark sheep of Carlton. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> hey, Mars, always love chatting to you, mate. Thank, Thank you, you very much. And, and, and uh, best of your better half, too. Oh, thank you. Are you calling the cricket tomorrow night? No, our Sydney team are doing that. Uh, I'll be doing. Uh, I'll not, be doing. Not worth oh, to no, of course it not is. Worth of course it is. <laughs> no, not worth Mars. listening to. If it's not you and Eckle and Jekyll. It's not worth listening to. Chuck and I are doing. I think uh, the third and fourth. Uh, as, oh, so there were the ones we'll, out of Melbourne. Yeah, we're doing those ones. Have a good evening, mate. Uh, you're a good man. Uh, one three hundred seven three six seven three six zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. The temper text, temper mattress, light no other. Just some on the rivalries, David. Rivalry is built on close games over a period of time. That's another thing that's helped with uh, Hawthorne and Geelong over that period. Um, I'm all for building up rivalries. Who cares uh, if it helps the result? It will put bums on seats. That's from Dave in Maroomba. Um, close games create rivalry. Uh, Sam, I think rivalries were better in yesteryear when players played one on one, but now it's zone on zone. There, that could be something to that. That some of the rivalries built out of the rivalries between the stars of each team. Uh, rivalries are gone, or the definition of change. Players are robots in the media, and the game is way too politically correct. That's from Gaz in Wandong. I, I don't. It's not. I don't blame the players for when for when they have to be very careful with their answers. I mean, they are, and again, I'm not having a crack at the clubs either, but they are media trained within an inch. I mean, they, they, they would be prepped on the answers, the questions that they might be asked and the answers they give. But the flip side of that, and I'll stick up for the players here, Gaz, is that the moment that one player does show a little bit of personality, a little bit of flair, a little bit of um, personality, I think I already said that, just repeating myself now, but they get they get trampled on as well. I mean, we we are unceremoniously brutal on players that show a little bit. Oh, pull your head in. You're getting ahead of yourself. You know, have some humility. So we can't have our cake and eat it too. For me, I love it when a player shows a little bit of themselves. I loved it when Nick Robertson said what he said about the Suns a few years ago. It 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 built up a game with two teams that. I don't know if Brisbane were exactly on the rise yet, but they were starting to build under Chris Fagan. But a game that had nothing to it became something. Just because a player had, you know, came out and said, yeah, we, we don't like these blokes. 
we think they're soft. So it might you, some people might have thought of that was being disrespectful. I just thought it was a player being honest, and it actually created a nice little piece of sizzle before that game and, and a real bit of spite to a building rivalry with the Q clash. And they went after Nick Robertson fairly, but they went after him physically at the start of that. Well, I commentated that game. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And Brisbane ended up winning, but the Suns pushed them all the way who were right near the bottom. And I think Brisbane were pushing for finals. It really gave that game a little bit of spice, a little bit of mayo, which is brilliant. Uh, Anyone remember the North v. Dogs rivalry last year? Huge beat up for Easter that turned out to be uh, an absolute fizzer. Tom in Malvern. Speaking of rivalry, Sam, at the moment, it looks like West Coast and Freo may be playing 22 games between them in the regular season. I present you with our minor premiers, West Coast. Um, there will always be hatred from North to Essendon, stemming from nearly 100 years ago when they vetoed our acceptance into the VFL because they were too scared of us entering the league. No other team... Do I despise so much because they are arrogant and scared? That's from Simon. So there's a rivalry that's still existing. Um, Sam, I became a passionate North Melbourne supporter late in the 70s because my older brother and cousin were still massive Hawthorne fans. So round one in 37 days' time is the most pumped we've been for a round one game in decades. Uh, and then Michael, Margaret and Sunbury won't be happy uh, with you bagging. I didn't, I didn't bag Carlton, Michael. It wasn't me. It was, uh, it was Tony. In Craigieburn, I think it was. Uh, Aiden's calling in Packenham. G'day, Aiden. Hey, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Uh, just wanted to talk about the, um, I guess, new rivalry or the yep. one that's sort of developing uh, with Melbourne and the Bulldogs and um, this little song that everyone's sort of getting um, all worked up about. I think it was Taylor Dre was on SEN earlier yep. this afternoon. And, yeah, he um, was. He spoke about um, the fact that, you know, the the D's might not have been as humble as what he expected um, after the grand final last year. I just wanted your take on the fact that it's potentially a new rivalry developing and um, your perspective on this song and the way Melbourne have handled themselves um, in relation to their celebrations and what might stem from it it in the next few years, I guess. Well, I hope a lot stems from it, Aidan. I I love, as I've been saying a few times, I love that there is a genuine dislike building between... These two teams. And we've heard the reports that maybe, uh, you know, that, that it was building over last year, that there was some things being said on the field in some of the games uh, that they played against each other. And then obviously grand final day. Um, and then what happened a couple of days after when they, uh, I think it was in a nightclub where the dogs are on one floor and the D's are on another. And Campbell Brown told the story in great detail. And it's all been played down a little bit. And and, and the, the people that were there have said, oh, it's been a little bit overblown. But... There was certainly, there there is certainly something to it. There is certainly truth in it, um, and it. I think it's great, um, as long as those rivalries. And I'll be careful what I say here because obviously nothing ended up eventuating. There was they weren't happy with the the way that you know the D's were playing their song and then played the Western Bulldogs theme song or whatever it was um, when they got there, whatever the report was that, but. It, it 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 was you know the cooler heads prevailed and nothing happened. So as long as nothing untoward happens and and we don't want players getting into fights in public or anything like that. But as far as the on field stuff goes, I love the fact that there is a genuine dislike between a couple of teams, and that we're going to have and it adds another element to a game that already has a lot to it, given that it's going to be um, the first time they've played each other since the grand final. So you know we trust that the players will behave accordingly, and you know they might not like each other. 
Campbell Brown told the story that they weren't quite happy with uh, how that unfolded and, and there might have been some words exchanged. But that's as far as it went because cooler heads prevailed and, and they did the right thing. But it just goes to add another element to a, a building rivalry. So that side of it, and as a broadcaster and as a fan, I absolutely love it. Um, because, and again, I would be changing my tune if they had have got into it and there had been something that untoward that had happened or that they'd gone too far or anything like that. Or we don't condone and don't encourage any of that, but we certainly do encourage the the development and um, the, the building of, of new rivalries because it's good for the game. It is really good for the game. one three hundred seven three six seven three six 736 736 is the number, 0433981116. And, and as for how Melbourne did or didn't conduct themselves after the win, well, they won. So you've got every right to, to celebrate. You've got every right to shout it from the rooftops, I suppose. And they were because I think they were at the level above in the nightclub, weren't they? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the Tigers always talk about being humble and hungry and we, we understand all of that. But that's the first premiership in 57 years for that club. So um, I don't, um, yeah, I think if that, if if what if how they acted has just raised the rancor slightly of the dogs, I'm all for it because we love the rivalries in football, and this is one that's on the rise. Uh, have your say. One three hundred seven three six seven three six. We'll be back after this. I uh, love the rivalry chat that's been coming through. Heaps on the text that I'm going to get to in just a moment. But, John, in Port Augusta, just before we uh, get to the top of the hour, John, rivalries, what have you got for me? Uh, Port and the Crows, mate. Being a Port man, can't stand them. Don't stand the Crows. Um, yeah, no, uh, it's, it was built up, it's built up in the media mainly because there's a certain radio station. It's not SCN. There's a certain radio station in this state that just has Crows ambassadors, former captains, Former coaches, former mm-hmm. players, and they beat up and all the rest of it. And so, you don't, to get a so John, you don't you don't like um, you don't like the beating up of the rivalry. You think that the rivalry's no, overblown? Or? Well, it makes it, it makes it, no I enjoy, rivalries are great. Yeah, but when it gets rivalries are great. But mm. you know, like um, I I just I don't like the crows because you got everything in the media in this state, and there's not that big a different supporter wise base now mm. between the two because a lot of the young have forgotten about. The 30-year-olds, 25-year-olds, for example, have forgotten about the Port Adelaide Magpies history and all the, or don't know about it so much about it and all the rest of it. And, um, yeah, a lot of them don't support because of the, the never tear us apart, all the rest of it. But, yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm 53. I used to follow the old VFL. I was a, I was a pretty keen Collingwood supporter, being the black yep. and white. And um, I couldn't see in Carlton. Almost feel sorry for them now. I didn't... In a way, it'd be great if um, Collingwood and Carlton could be, get their rivalry back. I have a big respect for Victorian football. Yeah, you're a good man, John. Hey, we're just about to run yeah, in the no, ad I break. Do. Sorry, Johnny. We're about to run in the ad break, my friend. But you, I'm glad you brought up Port Adelaide and Adelaide because I think it's probably in the top couple of rivalries in the game. And the fact that they don't get a standalone Friday night spot for the showdown, I think, is a massive slap in the face for the state of South Australia and a, and a, and a huge slap in the face for the supporters of those clubs. They always put it up against another game. It is one of the best, if not the best, rivalry in football uh, at the moment, and we should treat it accordingly. Uh, a couple off the text. How can one 
or two games and epoxy song warrant a rivalry. That's from Duna. Um, well, the grand finals helped Duna. Who's going to open up? How given? Who's going to open up? Given how quick the trolls are, etc., to howl them down. They can't win. Uh, I'm afraid. Good point there, Duna. And we spoke about that a little earlier as well. Uh, Max Lawton to join me on the other side of this. Uh, thanks for sticking with me or joining me, whichever category you fit into. Sporting Capital, Sam Hargraves, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. The floor is always yours on the Sporting Capital. NBL action, John Kane Arena tonight. South East Melbourne, Phoenix 24, Sydney Kings 32. About eight minutes to play in the second quarter. We'll keep you up to speed on those scores throughout the course of the evening as well. And uh, if you're just finishing up for the day and haven't heard the news, uh, significant injury coming out of... Um, the Gold Coast Suns, Ben King, who is, for every intents and purposes, probably going to be the most discussed Gold Coast Suns player all year anyway, given he's out of contract at the end of it. We know the Saints, the Dons, from all reports, are circling, and probably every other club in the AFL. He is a massive piece of what they need to continue to put together in terms of their puzzle if they're going to have success sooner rather than later. Um, In terms of goals that he's kicked over his career. I had it written down before. 89 goals, 53 games. Seven wins last year. He didn't make the top 10 in their best and fairest, even though he's their leading goal kicker, which I was astounded by that. But he, uh, in match simulation today uh, on the Gold Coast, uh, fell awkwardly, and I think it was about a three-person contest. Um, Ben, uh, Mitch, uh, yeah, (laughs) I almost did it again. I did that in six o'clock. Ben King from Channel 7. Channel 7's Mitch Crone. Uh, reported in to Dwayne Russell earlier and just gave us a breakdown on what actually happened. Look, it didn't look good. Um, you know, the, the Suns were doing a bit of match sim this morning. Uh, aerial marking contest just turned ugly. It's hard to exactly see from the vision uh, how the incident occurred. I hate to speculate, but it does possibly look non-contact, which, as you would know, generally does not bode very well. But he was left mm. down on the ground, clutching his knee and looked like he was in a fair bit of pain. So that was Mitch Crone on channel, uh, from Channel 7 with Dwayne Russell a little earlier. He actually he gave a bit of detail about the other players involved in it as well. Uh, well, actually, it was, uh, there was a few more nightmares. Mac Andrew was also went off um, around, I think it was in the same incident with an ankle. So that's a tough mm. blow for the young draft. And Mabior Chole looked like he copped a bit of pain from it as well. So definitely not what they'd be wanting, you know, just a, a month out from their, their first preseason game. So, geez, there's been some collateral damage, hasn't there? Uh, hopefully all those players are going to be okay. He's going to head off for scans, Ben King. But Mac Andrew, who was picked five for the Suns in last year's draft, and Marby Ochoa was a great get for the Suns. Uh, during the trade period as well. But that's not great news, and hopefully it's not the worst of news because Ben King sitting out the year, uh, that's the last thing that the Suns needed. They need to win. They need to win with him, I think, to keep him there. Mitch Crone spoke about that with Dwayne Russell, saying that there's a, a bit of a belief from him, just his, just as how he's perceived the chats that he's had with Ben, that for him and Jack Okosha's Isaac Rankin, who were taken in the same draft, and some of the other young guys, they want to see the Suns winning games. Uh, which could go a long way to deciding their future at the club. So, yeah, that's not the start to a season that the the Suns wanted. Hopefully it's not the worst-case scenario. Uh, Grant's in sale, who's given us a call, wants to throw uh, one from way out in left field to us. Grant, hello, mate. Yeah, g'day, Sam. Good listening, mate. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. 
My brother and I are having a debate. We need your help with it. That uh, we've always had the debate whether a um, champion racehorse has a great name or a great name makes a champion racehorse. You hear the great champions like I'm Thunderstruck or Farlap or Bone Crusher or going to the harness racing, you're at Gamalite and Popular Arm. Uh, they've always had great names. And we've tried to debate whether a great name makes a great racehorse or because a racehorse is great, the name is great. Ooh. What's your thoughts? Well, I mean... It's not, um, and some would argue that I have no area of expertise, but certainly it's not race, it's race horsing. I was about to do a Tim Watson there. It's certainly not horse racing history, but with with what I do know, I think there's an argument to be made each way. It, but what I would then ask you though, Grant, is can you give me the a name of a, 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 can you give me the great name of a horse that wasn't great? And can you give me a great horse that had a, a, a name that wasn't great? Well, that's the comical part is like, you never hear a great racehorse that's called Doo-Doo Can Run or I Clean the Kitchen. Yeah. Um, they yeah. always seem to have really, really good Yeah, names. like Sunline, <laughs> Might and Power, Doremus. Um, yes. Yeah. Black Caviar. That yes. was Black Caviar was an interesting name. Winx. Well, Winx isn't a great name. Let's be honest. No, that's fair. No, that, that, that's a fair one. But did the, name, did the horse make the name great or did, was it a yeah. name that end up making the horse a great... But um, you've always had the debate that you don't hear you know, a, a champion racehorse that's um, with a bad name. They always seem to have really, really good names. And even, you know, Behemoth or the ones running nowadays. It's, yeah. It's, it's even going back to the Might and Powers or... My favourite was Bone Crusher. What a magnificent Empire Rose. That was a great... That was the first That was the first horse that I ever had a win on was Empire Rose in the Melbourne Cup that year. Um, yeah. Th- what, well, let me ask you this then, Grant. What do you think of the name El Padrino? Uh, well, I love Clint Eastwood. It, it reminds me of uh, Gran Torino. <laughs> not a bad name. Not a bad name. Well, that's 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 the horse that myself and the beautiful Evie have uh, had. Um, we've got we've got a nostril hair in. Uh, it's had it's had three runs: a second, a first, and a fourth. So we're you, you know would have ran fourth. What's that? Sorry. You tipped it when it ran fourth. Yeah, I know. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, I had it for a, I had it for a place. <laughs> oh, I'm most sorry. Most of my place run, place getters run fourth, and most of my winners run second. Uh, well, yeah, you're not Robinson Crusoe there, Grant. Hey, it's a great question. I'll put it out to the text. 0433 98 11 16 or 1300 Does the horse make the name or does the, ma- the, does the name make the horse? Can you think of a great horse with a bad name or is the name only good because the horse is good and is the horse only good because the name's good? One three hundred seven three six seven three six or zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. Uh, greatly appreciate it, Grant. Uh, let's get to Max Lawton. Uh, well, as we get closer and closer to the AFL season starting, uh, one of the articles that I've really be always look forward to, especially over the last few years, is an article by Max Lawton. Fox Sports does a ripping job. Uh, incredible with the numbers, uh, the number crunching, uh, all the facts and figures and stats around football. There's not many better than Max Lawton at bringing those and bringing them in a way that really does get you thinking. Every year, I look forward to the Moneyball Theory story, the Pythagorean, the Pythagorean equation that he uses every year to try and establish, this is the sixth year of it, to try and establish who will be the risers up the AFL regular season ladder, who will fall. 
This method predicted Brisbane's rise in 2019. It predicted the Hawks' fall in 2016. It predicted the Cats to miss the finals in 2014, despite finishing third the year before. He's going to explain to us how it all works. Last year, this got some very, very heated and spirited feedback. So we want all of that and more again as we try and establish, using our abacuses, uh, and our calculators, exactly how our team's going to go this year. Max Lawton, uh, hello, mate. Hi, Sam. Pleasure to be with you again. Uh, now, just in case people... Because last year we had people just absolutely um, fascinated by this and we also had people furious with this, mm. thinking it was all a bunch of rubbish and, and you can get numbers to say anything, which I found interesting because I, I don't know if you can. But mm. just to set up a couple of your bona fides, um, how many years in a row have you won the office footy tipping using this method? Oh, look, only three in a <laughs> row. Just nothing, really. The, the number that I like the most, though, is based on the teams that you, you've looked at. With this, Tell me if I'm wrong here. And you'll explain the equation, but essentially 14 out of the 17 teams that you've applied this theory to, you've predicted where their season would would end. Yeah. So I've been looking at this since 2010 and every year I run the numbers and see which teams are the most likely to slide and most likely to fall. And of the strongest predictions I've had, I've been right 14 out of 17. Well, the stat has been right 14 out of 17 times. So if it's a really strong prediction, it's almost bang on every time. Explain to us how this Pythagorean equation is implemented, how this all works. So we mentioned Moneyball because it comes from baseball and essentially when you look at the ladder, you've got your wins and losses and they are what matters in the end, but they don't tell the whole story because you can obviously lose a game, lose a grand final on one bounce of the footy. So you have to actually look at the underlying numbers, how many points a team is scoring, how many points a team is conceding and if you obviously percentage is a great way to look at that so percentage to me is the best indicator you can ever find on the ladder and there are some teams that overperform what their percentage says they should have been uh there are teams you know port adelaide for example won 17 games last year but their percentage you know it's a little bit below the teams around them and then you've got teams at the bottom of the ladder the brisbane in 2019 example is the best one they only won five games that year, but they were one of the best bad teams you've ever seen. Mm. You know, they were so close to winning so many games. Their percentage told the story when their win total didn't, and they rocketed up into the top two the next year. So it's one of those things where the percentage tells the story because if you're getting close to beating good teams, close games are pretty luck-based. You know, you can train a lot of uh, close game drills and how you're going to kick clutch goals, but a lot of the time it's just luck. So if sometimes are bad luck, sometimes are good luck, that usually balances out the next year, and that's where this stat comes in. All right. So, and you, and just give us that there is a key number that you're always looking at, uh, aren't you, uh, to try mm. and um, utilise this equation. What is that key number? Yeah. So, if teams are one and a half to two wins worse or better off than they should have been, that's when the tip gets really strong. And, and Brisbane, that 2018 to 2019 Brisbane example, they should have won three and a half more games than they did in that season. So they were way below. They should have been an okay team. They were a terrible team according to the ladder, but they rocketed up. So anytime I see a team that's one and a half to two games off, I get interested and I have a look at their, how they actually went during the season, whether they played a lot of close games, what could possibly explain it. 
and then the strongest ones are the ones we make the predictions on. And you also predicted, as I said, the Cats dropping away from third in 2013. You had them dropping significantly in 2014. They missed the finals, despite a 17-5 and year the year before. You predicted the same thing for the Hawks in 2016. So yep. what, based on the numbers that you've crunched, now that you've gone through every team, Give me a couple of uh, teams that fans can be excited about their potential to rise. Who are going to be the risers this year for you? So the strongest tip to rise this year is Essendon, actually, which, funny enough, because they already had their rise last year, you would have thought. But they won 11 games, but their percentage says they should have won almost 13. So that's a almost two-win gap that you've got. And that 13, that wouldn't have got them into the top six. I think Sydney won 15, and they wouldn't have gotten that. But if you... Look at Essendon, they should have won two more games. Say they did win those games. Then they're playing Sydney in the elimination final, who lost the elimination final, instead of getting thumped by the dogs. That's a season-changing thing right there. That's Essendon underperforming and should have been better. So based on history, because they underperformed this year, they should at least go back to average. I'm not saying that they're going to start winning all their close games and get really lucky. They should at least be average. And if they're average... They're coming off a win, a base of being 12 or 13 win team, which is a team that should be definitely making the finals. Give me, uh, give me another one. So that'll be good for Essendon fans who are still looking yep. for that first finals uh, win. Uh, I think the count now is well up over 6,000 so, uh, days. So uh, give me another team who's on the rise, please. So this would be one from down the bottom would be Collingwood. Uh, they only won their six games, but they played so many close games. And a lot of that is how defensively they played so often and they blooded so many kids. So they win their six games. They should have won almost eight. So that's close to a two-win gap again. It's almost as strong as the Essendon prediction. So what that says to me is not that Collingwood is going to bounce back all the way into the finals, but Collingwood was not as bad as finishing 17th. You know, that, that lies, essentially. They were almost as good as Carlton, as, as Hawthorne last year, a team that teams that got out of the bottom four. So Collingwood was not as bad as everyone thinks. Well, their percentage... get out of that. Yeah, their percentage, just to point that out. So Carlton finished yeah. 13th, Collingwood had a better percentage. Hawthorne finished 14th, Collingwood had a better percentage. Adelaide finished 15th, Collingwood had a better percentage. They had a better percentage in the Suns who finished ahead of them as well. Um, they didn't have as good a percentage as St Kilda. So, yeah, that one checks out as well. Any others that are rising? So there's two real top contenders now that are sort of in a similar boat where Brisbane and the Bulldogs, I mean, everyone agreed that by the end of the year there were five proper contenders that could have won the flag and they had that mm. amazing semi-final. So Brisbane and the Bulldogs actually had the two best percentages in the comp. And, you know, if you have the best percentage, you're usually going to be up the top, but they were battling it out for fourth. Whoever wins that spot for fourth gets Melbourne in the qualifying final, gets stumped, and then their season's pretty much almost over. So... I would suggest that Brisbane and the Dogs should have won at least one and a half more games last year. One of them does that. That gets them into the final against Port instead of playing Melbourne. That's a big chance to host a prelim right there because they can win that game. So Brisbane and the Dogs, if you want a riser from the top five or six, would be my tips. Give me a team that everybody is predicting to rise, but the numbers are telling you that they actually won't. So the, the real sexy team, I think, is Frio. Mm. Uh, even though losing Adam Chera, everyone likes where their list field is going. You've got Sean Darcy leading that ruck division in the midfield, getting better and better, and David Mundy being timeless. But we talked about Collingwood's percentage. Their percentage was barely worse than Freo's. And Freo was in the finals race until the last weekend, right? They had that chance to get in if they'd beaten St Kilda in the last round, but mm. they didn't. Their percentage was that of an eight-win team, and they actually won 10. So they should have been down in the muck, in the bottom six with Carlton and Hawthorne and Adelaide and Collingwood when it seemed like, oh, they're so close to the finals. 
So you can, you've got to take this two ways because naturally teams are going to get better if they're younger. That makes a lot of sense. So if you still think Frio is going to be better, they might be. But you can't think that they're just so close to the finals and going to jump into the eight. That's not what the numbers say. What the numbers say is they were an eight-win team and have to try and win 12 next year. So that, that four wins they have to make up is a lot more than two which it seems like they have to base on the ladder. That's a, a more difficult task for them, particularly if they still can't figure out how to score. Give me the teams that you're predicting to fall based on uh, percentage and, and based on what the, this calculation is telling you. So Fremantle being the biggest one, and the other ones, there aren't super strong predictions here. I'll name them anyway. So Port Adelaide is the next one. And Port's almost for a different reason because they had... I think it was they, they won 17 games and they should have won about 15.6. Basically, obviously you can't win 15.6 games in reality. This is just how the numbers work. Mm. So they were the luckiest team in the comp last year. They had five games in the home and away decided by 12 points or less. They won all of them. And if you look over history, there are very, very few teams. I think Geelong in the last decade is the only team that has proven that they have luck on their side. Every other team, you could expect to go 50-50 in close games. Because you can practice all you like, but it's still luck-based. It's still, if you miss a certain shot of goal, you should have made, and one free kick goes against you. So Port goes 5-0 in close games last year. If they lose just one of those games, and you take into account how many of those games that they probably just got over the line, they wouldn't have hosted a qualifying final, and maybe they wouldn't have beaten Geelong in that game and hosted a prelim and had that chance to get to the grand final. So these are the margins as fine as they are at the top. So Port could very easily drop down just a couple of wins which luck says they should, and that would take them out of the top two. Well, that that is that one is absolutely fascinating. And I didn't know about how the numbers normally broke in those um, two kick games that we're calling, mm. uh, you know, those close contests. So Frio and Port for you, those are the ones that to keep a, 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 a significant eye on. I know some of these are a little bit too close to call, but I'm just going to throw some teams at you, and you let sure. us know whether they're going up or down or holding from where they were last year. Uh, let's just start with the reigning premiers, Melbourne. Finished uh, top of the table, 17 wins, four losses, one draw. If they have to go anywhere, it has to be down. Uh, right. They were slightly lucky. They should have lost one extra game last year. So they could have been uh, 16 and five instead, which would have had them finishing uh, in third. Mm-hmm. What about uh, the Cats? So the Cats were pretty much bang on. They should have won 15.7 games and they won 16. So, you know, that you had that the round 23 game against Melbourne that was so close, kick after the siren to decide it. That game basically swung whether they were lucky or unlucky for the season. So the Cats were as good as they should have been. And, and I'm one of the... Uh, every year, people say that Geelong's going to slide because they're old. And every year I say, look how many games they've got at Cadinia and they're going to win. They've got such a good high base that it's hard for me to see them sliding too far. But I could see them fighting a little bit just based on, you know, being experienced or too experienced. Saints fans are the ones now uh, looking at the, the biggest premiership drought uh, in the game. Is there any joy for them coming? Oh, so on the numbers, no. Uh, on the numbers, they were a little bit lucky. They should have maybe lost one extra game. But this is one where I would look at everything else around the Saints and say that they were so unlucky with injuries early in the year. And they were not the same team in the first half of the year as they were in the second half. So that they should have had a better percentage by playing better in the second and in the first half of the season. So I could see them rising, even though the numbers don't say that they will. And what about the Blues? The Blues, ooh, they were a little bit unlucky. I'm surprised they weren't more unlucky. It felt like 
you know, they had so many things going against them. But they were this this weird thing where they didn't play close games. Almost all of their losses were between three and five goals. You knew exactly what you were getting from Carlton. If they were winning, they were winning with exciting scoring. And if they were losing, they were losing because they kept giving up goals forever. Uh, so the Blues are about what they should have been last year. I think it's more about the recruiting and the off-field stuff with the new coach that will decide whether they rise. And and this one really illustrates the point you made about Frio. So Carlton won eight games with a percentage of 88. Frio won 10 games with a percentage of 86. So yes. that, that really does highlight what you're talking about with Frio. Um, this is always fascinating to me, Max. It always gets a really interesting response. It's the sixth year that you're applying this Pythagorean. Am I saying that right? Pythagorean, perhaps? Pythagorean uh, equation, the money ball theory taken from baseball, applying it to football, of the teams that you've highlighted over the last uh, six years, you've got on 14 out of 17 in getting it right, and you've won the office footy tipping uh, for the last three years. So I reckon if you put your footy tips up each week on Twitter, there'll be a lot of people following you. Uh, have you got your eight? Have you done an eight yet or not yet? I haven't done my full eight. I can tell you my grand final, yeah. which I think will be Melbourne losing to Brisbane. Melbourne losing. I'm going to write this down and we're going to revisit it uh, at the end of the year. If you you look at all the advanced stats this year, a lot of the the stats nerds, we love Brisbane for whatever reason. So they're the riser. Brilliant. Love it, Max. Thank you so much, mate. Uh, Really appreciate it. It is fascinating and it does have a proven track record now. have it going into its sixth year. We're going to throw this up on the the website uh, as well if people want to re-listen to it uh, to hear about what's going to happen for their team. Max, thank you so much, mate. Greatly appreciate it. There we go. Give us your thoughts. Good, bad, or otherwise. Are you buying in? 14 out of 7 of the team, 14 out of 17, the teams he's highlighted over the last six years have done exactly what the equation has predicted. 1-300-736-736 or 0433-98-1116 to have you say. There's a fair few texts coming through as well. This is Sporting Capital. Over to you. Uh, great to chat to Max Lawton, that Pythagorean or Pythagorean theory that he applies to the AFL ladder, using percentage as a guideline for where teams will finish in the year to come, 14 out of 17 teams that he's highlighted. Some of the margins with the calculation are a little bit too close because you've got to be 1.5 to 2 has to be the difference in the, the games that were could have gone either way. Um So there's a couple of people asking about a few teams, uh, wanting to know about Richmond. So Richmond, according to this article, last year had 9.5 actual wins because they had the draw. Based on that equation, they should have had 10.5 wins. So they were a win difference. Now, a win wouldn't have got them back into the eight. So it may not make a massive difference to Richmond this year. But I do predict that Richmond jump back into the eight. The reason why this is so fascinating, because the other side of the statistics that we know is that only two... It's either two or three times in the last 10 years there hasn't been a team in the 4-1 year out of the finals the year after. If you go back and have a look, I think it's three in the 4-1 year out of the finals the year after. So all likelihood points to a top four team from last year missing finals. And we know that it's 2.5 to three and getting closer to three teams that are in the eight won't be in the eight this year. So how do we figure that out? Well, that, that equation that Max uses, the money ball equation which is based on their percentage and based on 12-point and under wins and losses, 
read the article up on foxsports.com.au. We're going to put that chat up at sen.com.au uh, so you can have a listen to it again. But he's predicting Essendon to be one of the big movers up uh, and predicting Frio uh, to be one of the sliders and also Port Adelaide to be a slider coming into this year. And there's a few other teams that he went through as well. Well worth a listen. Steve's on the road. G'day, Steve. Damien, how are you? Good, mate. What do you got for me? Um, how did you go predicting Richmond's um, three premierships out of the five? How did he go predicting Richmond's premierships? I don't know if uh, that was what the equation does. He, he was predicting the latter for each year based on that it's equation. Because 2016, they're pretty crap, let's face it. So for them to come up and even make the finals, mm. I don't think wouldn't have been in his... Um, well. It would be, it would be, Steve. We'd have to go back and have a look at that 2016 year. Look at their percentage and look at how many games are involved in where that was within 12 points, and then you apply the calculation to that. So that's what we'd have to go and figure out. He may have predicted the rise. He, he predicted Geelong falling from out of the uh, from the four out of the eight. He's the, the article is a great read because it points to the real success stories of each year's predictions. And he's, he's got Brisbane and Western Bulldogs on the improve, winning more games this year than last year as well. So it is, it's got a proven track record now. Yeah, looking at Richmond's win-loss last season, there was it all sort of went to pieces when they should have had West Coast by the throat and absolutely slaughtered them. Yep. And somehow they lost. Yep. And then there was all these other crazy losses where... Um, it's just something you, you, you just can't explain. And then you have to also factor in teams which they stuff it, like Collingwood, and we'll bottom out and we'll we'll pick up next year. Um, yeah. Um, well, he's got he's got Collingwood. Collingwood he's got Collingwood on the rise. Given again, uh, if you go and, and and have a read of how, and we'll put it up at sen.com.au so you can hear it from from the man himself about how that equation works. But he's he's got Collingwood on the improve this year, and um, and it's based on that theory that examines the over and under performers based on the twelve point and under games that they've been in, um, and how their percentage shaped up. So Frio's a great example that they actually finished just outside the finals, but they had a percentage worse than I think it's the four or five teams that finished below them. Um, podcast is already up, sen.com.au. So that Max Lawton chat already up. So well worth a listen to, Steve, because to, it, it took me a couple of goes to, to be able to get my head around it uh, as well. Uh, off the text, you can bin this theory, not taking player injuries and list changes into account. Uh, and there's a couple of people that don't buy into it at all. I'm saying that the track record is pretty darn good. If I could tell you that 14 out of 17 of the teams that he's highlighted over the last six years have gone exactly where the equation, it's not Max, it's the equation that he applies to where they finished on the ladder last year. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good strike rate, uh, I would have thought. Uh, we're going to shift our attention to NBL on the other side of this. At the moment, uh, between the South East Melbourne Phoenix and the Sydney Kings at John Kane Arena, um, third quarter about to start, 39-43, Kings with a four-point lead uh, at half time. This is a sporting capital. We'll be back with Mitch Norton from the Perth Wildcats after this. Uh, welcome back to the Sporting Capital. All tied up at John Kane Arena uh, into the third quarter. Seven minutes to play. In fact, Kings have just gone ahead by three, courtesy of a three-pointer 
uh, from Adams. So 50 to 47 at the moment. Kings over the Phoenix uh, in a tight one. Really looking forward to Saturday night. Uh, one of the great rivalries in the NBL is... Melbourne United and the Perth Wildcats. Of course, it was Melbourne United victorious uh, in last year's grand final series. Uh, the Wildcats' last title win was over Melbourne United. So there is uh, a really, really strong rivalry. We've been speaking about rivalries for a lot uh, during the show throughout the course of the evening. And this is one of the best ones in the NBL. And there's uh, a little bit more extra to play for. Not that they need it, professional athletes, but uh, with Jesse Wagstaff, the captain, uh, playing his 400th game, uh, just Ricky Grace sitting above him in games played. I think he scored the second or third most three-pointers uh, for the Perth Wildcats in their illustrious history. So when your name sits with names like that, then you are a great of your club. And Mitch Norton's been good enough to jump on the phone to pay tribute to Jesse Wagstaff to pump up this game at Saturday night, John Kane Arena, before the Wildcats are finally able to head home from what we're hearing today. Mitch Norton, hello to you. G'day. How you doing? I'm good, thanks, mate. Um, I'm starting to read bits and pieces that Perth teams are uh, going to be able to head home soon. What's the latest that you guys understand with um, what's to come for you after Saturday night? Yeah, we, uh, we've we obviously heard that as well. Um, to be honest, we haven't exactly got a date that we're looking to return. Um, at the moment, we've still got you know a couple of games scheduled on the road um, till probably the end of February. So we're looking to pretty much be based here in Melbourne, um, until then, uh, and then after that, we're not exactly sure what the go is. So um, right now, we're kind of just focused on what we can control, and that's that's us stepping foot on the basketball court. Mitch, for those who don't know, how long have you guys been on the road for? So we left home twenty uh, seventh of December. Um, so we got to spend Christmas with our families before taking off, um, and yeah, we kind of haven't really seen them since because. Um, you know, it wasn't like we couldn't get our families out here. You know, Perth are supportive in, in all that stuff and trying to make us feel as comfortable as we can. Um, but our partners wouldn't have been allowed back into the state. So, um, yeah, it was obviously challenging for a lot of people. Um, everyone's situation is different. Um, so, yeah, it, it has been... There's definitely some good days and some bad, but uh, I'm lucky we've got a really good group of guys, fantastic support staff, and a very understanding coaching staff as well. So um, it's kind of made things as, as easy as we can. How do you manage it, Mitch? I mean, we, we, we hear, I mean, we've had a lot of people listening to us that are flying, fly out, that, that, that for their work are, are away. Um, but this isn't what your normal existence uh, is like. So to have been away from home since a couple of days after Christmas, um, that's a substantial amount of time to be living out of a, a suitcase and being away from family and and loved ones. How do you manage it? How does the club manage it? How do you all support each other? Um, being in a sporting environment, we're very goal-orientated. And, you know, you have a date where the game's going to be played and you work to that date. And um, We kind of had that when the borders were going to open on February. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. It got moved last minute. So um, for the goalpost to move, kind of not too far away from when you're going to be heading home was uh, very disappointing to hear. Um, obviously, that's well above our pay grade to, to make comments and, and everything like that. So for us, you know, every guy every guy treats it differently. We're, we've got a pretty young group, so um, there's a fair few gaming consoles floating around. Um, so, you know, that takes up a fair bit of time. We've got backgammon, chess, pretty much everything you can think of um, floating around to kill some time and... And other than that, um, yeah, I guess just 
communicating and getting to know your teammates has kind of been, I guess, a positive out of this situation. Uh, and you guys have got one of the the most well-defined and well-established cultures within any sporting organisation in the country. We know that, you know, 35 years in a row, incredible success, more championships than, than any other uh, NBL franchise. How important is it when the days start to roll into the days and, yep, you've got games and training to be able to break it up, but sometimes there's a little extra bit of incentive and motivation that can come to a game. So how big is this occasion for you guys as a team and as an organization for Jesse Wagstaff, who's a five-time champion to be playing game number 400? It's a, it's a special occasion I would imagine for the club. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, for anyone to play 400 games in the NBL is, you know, an amazing achievement, let alone for one club. Um, you know, there's plenty of guys that have probably wanted, wanted to do that. Um, clubs have folded and, and things like that. So uh, it's kind of been taken out of their hands. But to, to, for Jesse to make the move to Perth back when he did, um, play all those games and pretty much play a season worth of finals games, really, um, you know, is quite incredible. And when you think about the Wildcats and, you know, their culture and DNA and everything like that, um, Jesse Wagstaff definitely has his fingerprints all over it. You know, he's he's probably the eldest guy on our team, but he's the first in the weight room, first in the gym, getting shots up on a day off when he's got a family, got three kids and, and you know, studies and has three degrees as well. So uh, I, I don't know how he has more hours in the day than anyone else, but, um, you know, he manages to get it done. And, and, yeah, like I said, when I think of Perth Wildcats, I think of uh, one man, and that's Jesse Wagstaff. The uh, it's beautifully said. Um, I was reading that Matty Knight, uh, former teammate of seven seasons with Jesse, he really was fired up about the fact that uh, Jesse wasn't included in the best ten ever to play in the forty year history of of the Perth Wildcats. And um, from what we know about Jesse Wagstaff, he'd never been a guy to make it all about him. But were you, did, were you able to glean any disappointment from him about not getting into that ten, or has it barely raised an eyebrow with him? Um, Jesse's not really big on social media, so he had kind of no idea he'd come out. <laughs> um, so, no, you know, like you've said, Wags, is, is, he's never been about that. Um, I don't think he ever will be. Um, as long as he gets to step foot on a basketball court with, you know, 10 of his best mates, um, he's a very happy man. And, you know, to say that he's done it for a number of years and, you know, won six championships and, and 400 games and something that um, I think he'll he'll remember for the rest of his life. And, and all the members and fans back in Perth will will do so also. Oh, I love that when he was asked about it, Jesse said, yeah, I don't see a spot for me on that team. <laughs> so it's a non-event <laughs> for me personally. Oh, very understated. Um, but the other great part of Saturday night's going to be, and we've been talking about rivalries uh, and and how do we how well do we promote them um, in sport now. The rivalry between Perth Wildcats and Melbourne United is as real as it gets. Uh, what does that rivalry mean to you? Yeah, it's it's um, you know it's a very healthy rivalry. Um, you've got players all over the floor that have that have had fantastic careers, um, both in Australia, overseas. You know, you name it, they've uh, they've done it. So it's um, it's going to be a very entertaining matchup. Obviously, you know we've had a couple of battles in grand final series and what like and things like that. So um, I'm really looking forward to obviously getting there to John Kane and, and playing in front of a big crowd. When it comes to the the build up to them, do you, as a player, 
and because that can there's oftentimes intensity and there's verbal and there's things said and and these rivalries are built off hard fought close contests. You guys have played, won and lost championships against each other. When you asked about them. Are you a straight bat kind of guy, or do you think that there is a place for the players to talk up the rivalry and to say, "Yeah, we don't really like these guys very much, and we can't wait to wipe the floor with them"? How do you view that <laughs> that that theatrical element to a build up to a rivalry game? I mean, I'm I'm a pretty straight bat kind of guy, <laughs> um, but I know there's certainly guys out there that that would love to get out there and speak their mind, and and um, you know, I think some of them do. Uh, which is, I think, again, is great for the game, great for the media and everything like that. So um, for me, I think just going up against Delhi is going to be something that's, that mm. I'm looking forward to. Um, you know, watching him play for a number of years and, you know, the things he's achieved with the Boomers team, um, you know, is unbelievable. And I think it's pretty cool that he's back in the NBL and, and you know, playing for Melbourne. And, and yeah, it's something that I'm probably going to pinch myself. Um, I think Jesse will as well. I think he might be the only guy running around in the NBL wearing delis. So um, <laughs> it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting matchup <laughs> between well, those two. And, surely we're and not going to get what, what was it? What was that back in the day that a player decided to try and sledge Michael Jordan? And he just looked down and said, whose shoes are you wearing, mate? <laughs> I don't think he said yeah. mate, but so we're going to have a moment yeah. like that where Jesse might have something to say to Delhi. He's going to say, whose shoes are you I, wearing? I don't think so. I know he's running low on his stash of delis, so he might be hitting <laughs> him up for a pair, I think. oh that's brilliant uh speaking to mitch norton from the perth wildcats mitch the the team top of the ladder at the moment we should never be surprised that a perth team is is sitting at the pointy end uh, of the ladder the combo of vic law and bryce cotton i mean how reassuring i mean that's as good as any um electric blanket um you know, that that is the greatest safety net, I think, in basketball at the minute, isn't it? You've got two out of the top three scorers uh, in the competition. Um, and I think the secondary part of that is you guys, though, know that you don't have to rely on them. Vic Law had a quiet night uh, against um, South East Melbourne, and you still got the win coming back from a fair way behind. But how confident are you every time you step out with those two guys in the in the scoring vein that they're in? Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Um, I know a lot of you know the other guys, myself included. Um, you know, you can kind of get caught just sitting back and just watching and admiring what those two guys can do. Um, and then you realise, oh, I might actually have to help them out here and uh, you know play some basketball myself. So um, I guess with that comes you know challenges again. You know, trying to rely on guys heavily. Um, you know, across forty minutes, let alone you know, game by game and, and, you know, if you make it to the playoffs, then in series. So um, for us, it's, it's you know, making sure that, you know, they, they do have a lot of responsibility on the team. they they got to make plays and things like that. But it's the other guys that um, when their number's called or, or things aren't going away for Bryce and, and Vic, that, um, you know, we can step up and do so. And I think that's what was so impressive about our, our victory over Southeast um, was, you know, Todd Blanchfield, I don't think got on the scoreboard, which is something that's very rare in his, you know, long career. Mm. Um, and Vic kind of had a quiet night as well. But, um, you know, you saw the emergence of Luke Travers and, and things like that, which, um, you know, obviously take a bit of scoring pressure off those guys. I was going to ask you about Luke Travers before I let you go. That I, I commentated that game and uh, we were blown away by his all-round game. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the feeling 
and I'm just trying to jog my memory here, it might have been a career high in terms of points, but he did it on the glass. He did it with assists. He did it defensively. He was finding his range for three. I think he'd been below 10% for three before that game, but he had the confidence to take his shots. And he made, for me, it looked like a statement game. For him, he is a real talent, and there's a reason why he's in uh, draft calculations for the NBA. Yeah, no doubt. He's, um, you know, his his talent has never been questioned. You know, he's got all the tools to go on and be an, an unbelievable player at the next level. And I think um, just that confidence that he had them from a really good week of training. I think he said it in his press conference. Um, you know, the week was, you know, a successful one for him in terms of you know focusing on his shot and. Not just that, but his defense as well. And I think you know when you when you put a lot of pressure on, you know whether you make or miss uh, a shot, you know that can take away from you know some of the major attributes of his game, and that's defensively and getting into the paint and finding teammates. So um, it was fantastic to see him knock a few threes down. Uh, I know we have all the confidence in the world in him, um, and it's good to see him kind of go out there and just reward himself for the for the hard work he's put in. I've done you a favour here because we're just about plumb out of time and I haven't been able to ask you about Matty Hodgson. It's a two-week suspension now. How's he travelling? Is he okay? Is he simmered down? <laughs> yeah, he's all good. He's all good to go. <laughs> Nicely done. I've looked after you there, Mitch Norton. I've really looked after you there. We've run out of time and you don't have to answer that one. Hey, mate, enjoy Saturday night. It's a big occasion for the club. Jesse Wagstars 400 against the old rival Melbourne United. Can't wait for it. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks a lot, mate. Appreciate it. Uh, he's a very good man, Mitch Norton, two-time champion with the Perth Wildcats. Uh, and he's 100% right. That matchup between him and Matthew Delavadova, two blokes, tougher than old boots, harder than cats' heads, will be going head-to-head, uh, which will be great to see. We'll be calling that game on SEN on Saturday night. Looking forward to that. Uh, we'll tidy up the hour, and then we're going to turn our attention to the Super Bowl uh, in the last hour. Keeping uh, thanks for all these texts that are coming through. 043 Well done, Alex, who's won basketball tonight. He's saying United better smack him, talking about the Wildcats on Saturday night, and he's happy that the Wildcats get a heap of home games March and April. Uh, in regards to Max Lawton's segment, the Pythagorean calculations that he puts uh, on each team based on their win-loss record from last year, um, their points for and against percentage, Sam... Sorry, Sam, very interesting theories in math, but math has nothing to do with Pythagoras, those who is best known for the uh, theorem that A times X read A squared equals B times B uh, plus C times C in all right-angled triangles. That's from Greg and Clorinda. Greg, I'm just telling you what he calls it uh, on the uh, foxsports.com.au website. But essentially, they're trying to figure out which team's 2021 win-loss record is lying to us, who isn't quite as good as the final ladder made them look, who's better, uh, and they do it by calculating, uh, by they do it. Now I'm going to run out of time to explain it, so I'm not going to try and explain it because I've only got 15 seconds before we crash into the ad break. Uh, but Matt, very interesting as a Bombers supporter, does it take into consideration the harder draw? No, it doesn't, but that can be a factor, absolutely. Hey, we'll turn our attention to Super Bowl up next. Super Bowl on Monday, we will get the Cincinnati perspective from George Vogel and we will get the LA perspective from ESPN's and the host of SportsCenter, John Anderson, in this hour. Uh, 
Ah, uh, yes, indeed. Hour three, final hour with you for another one. Uh, one three hundred seven three six seven three six is the number to call at any point uh, in the sporting capital, or zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. You can text me on the temper text. Temper a mattress like no other. Just to tidy up from the last hour. So we had Max Lawton on, and people either love it or hate it whenever I get Max on to give uh, his latter predictions based on the Pythagorean calculation that's first used in baseball and then it's been readjusted to work out uh, where teams, which teams will rise and which team will fall on the ladder in this season based on their win, not just their win-loss, but their points for and against and their percentage. And it's to do with how many close games they played, under 12, 12 points and under whether they should have won or should have lost. So how it works, it's on the website. And we're going to put it up at sen.com.au. But just to let you know how it works. And there is a link to a website that has the actual equation on there. So you can actually do it yourself. Uh, Tony Cork, who's a footy statistician, has adopted this formula used in baseball by Bill James and, and rejigged it so it applies to AFL. So... It works analytically. It looks at a team's attacking and defensive performances overall rather than purely whether they won or lost matches. It gives a larger sample size and more information. So it's based off scoring. So have a, so imagine two AFL clubs that each played four games against average opposition. So the first team won three games by a point and lost the fourth by 100 points. The second team lost two games by a point and won the other two by 100 points. So which of those teams do you think is better? The team that won three games or the team that won two games? Well, based on this calculation, the first team won an extra game, but its percentage and arguably its performance is going to be worse than the second team. So they argue that the second team was more impressive. And the expectation, the Pythagorean expectation, uses that same principle. So there is a formula. There's a link on the website there to it. Doesn't work to predict every team. You need the gap between the side's actual wins and the Pythagorean wins to be 1.5 or 2 and above for the stat to work. But for every one of the six years he's done it, so the last three years he's won his office footy tipping, Max Lawton, and the 17 teams that he's highlighted over the last six years, 14 of those have finished exactly where the calculation said that they would. So he's nailed it 14 out of 17 times. So it's a very interesting study, I guess you'd say. So a couple of texts coming through. I'm a Bomber supporter. Very interesting. Does it factor in that we'll have a harder draw this season because we made the eight? Uh, No, it's based off your percentage from last year. But based on that, Max is actually tipping Essendon to win more games this year than they did last year. So he's predicting Essendon to rise. Any news on North Melbourne where he's got them on the ladder? The actual wins and the Pythagorean wins for North Melbourne last year um, actually pretty much neck and neck. So it doesn't really tell us anything uh, about North Melbourne. So they're probably exactly where they should be. Um, And again, based on the idea that you'll based on the idea that if you have 12 point or under games that you will have luck or you won't, that you how lucky you will be in those games. Now I'm making a, I'm botching this in my explanation of it. It's why you need to listen to Max and why I get him on. Um, so no, North Melbourne looking like they'll hold. Richmond he thinks might rise a little bit because uh, they won one game less than they should have based on the calculation last year. Um, Sam numbers can stats can be manipulated. Did you know one in seven dwarves are grumpy? That's from Damo in Albany. Thank you very much, Damo. Uh, is the commentary for the T20 live on SEN tomorrow from AG? Yes, it is. 
Um, and then AG says, based on this theory, Essendon should shoot up. Exactly right, AG. And that's what Max is saying will happen based on the calculations. Uh, this guy helps my argument about the unfair fixture. Winning or losing an extra game can mean a lot in the AFL. Our game's biggest issue is the fixture. Fix it. Uh, and those are just a few that are coming through. 0433981116 off the temper text. Temper a mattress like no other. A little later this hour... We're going to go to John K. Anderson, a longtime host of SportsCenter on ESPN. Does the 11 to 1 shift of SportsCenter. We're going to talk more predominantly about the LA Rams with him in the build-up to this Super Bowl. Um, but a little earlier on this evening, I caught up with a man that we did speak to after the Bengals booked their spot in their first Super Bowl since 1989. Um, I caught up with Max. Uh, caught up with George Vogel uh, a little earlier on this afternoon. He's been a long-time anchor um, with the NBC affiliate. And this is the chat that I had with him earlier. Uh, well, Cincinnati about to do something they haven't done since 1989. They're about to contest their third ever Super Bowl in their history. And we're lucky enough to catch up with George Vogel, WLWT News 5. Uh, this man has been uh, a news anchor, a sports presenter. He's been covering and reporting on the Cincinnati Bengals uh, for longer than it's been since they last went into a Super Bowl. And he's been good enough to jump on the line with us again. George, hello, mate. How you doing? Everything's good here in Los Angeles, I can tell you that. Uh, weather would be a little different, I'd imagine, from where you're used to residing. But how has the last over week and a half been since you and I last spoke and the people of Cincinnati, the people of Ohio, have been able to bask in this build-up? What's it been like? Oh, it's the town has gone nuts. You know, it had been so long, I forgot how into it people get when this team's successful and, and heading to a Super Bowl. And... You know, they had a, a rally on Monday night, a send-off rally for the team before they left for Los Angeles. And it was cold in Cincinnati. You're right. There's a big weather difference. And, you know, snow on the ground, ice on the ground. And they put out 30,000 tickets for this thing, for the send-off. And all 30,000 went in a hurry. And the people showed up, had a great time. And, uh, you know, it was like a game in and of itself. It was like a game day at Paul Brown Stadium as they sent this team on their way to L.A. It was a big celebration. And, and really 30 years in the making, you know, people were ready to explode. The, um, like any team that you, you follow in life, when, when and we've experienced it here, as I said to you last time, the, the team that won the Aussie Rules Premiership, our, our professional competition here, hadn't uh, been able to win one for 57 years. What what's the, what's the wait been like for Cincinnati? Because it's not only been a, a wait to get back there. It's been a wait to even get anywhere near there. I mean, two years ago, the team went 2-14. and 14. I mean, this is a, not just a yeah. team that's been starved of playoffs, but, sorry, starved of Super Bowls. They've been starved of anything remotely resembling success. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, they hadn't won a playoff game since uh, 1991 before they got to this season. That was their first win in 31 years, the first playoff win. And so, uh, you know, it, it, people didn't know how to act at first. It was like, you know, it was like a big celebration when they won the first one. And the team's like, yes, this was great, but calm down, calm down. We're not done yet. And people are like, yeah, right. Uh, we, we've seen this play before, but not with this new bunch of Bengals with Joe Burrow. They went out and won the next two on the road against, you know, some fairly insurmountable odds, really, uh, and got it done on the road away from home. And here they are in the Super Bowl and, and, you know, you, you hate to say 
that it made it that much sweeter waiting that long because no one wants to wait that long. But I got to tell you, people just exploded. I, I, there's a lot of people like me that said you, you forgot how into it people would be if they made it to this point. And, you know, there's just orange and black everywhere in that city, which is, you know, the Bengals team colors. How explain explain to us how a team that during the regular season loses to the Bears, the Jets, the Browns, and I'll give them a pass mark for the Chargers because I think Chargers were probably the best team to not make the playoffs. But a team that won, mm-hmm. lost to the, especially the Bears and the Jets, how does that team end up turning it around to get to the big dance? Well, quite honestly, it sounds simple, but turnovers. Um, they shot themselves in the foot in those games. The mm. Jets game, they had that game won. Joe Burrow made a very uncharacteristic mistake late in that game that allowed the Jets to win that ball game. Uh, and, and he took it upon himself. He, he held himself accountable and said, look, I got to quit turning the football over. I can't make dumb interceptions. We can't make dumb mistakes. They corrected that. It sounds simple, but you look at the numbers, everything correlates to that. And they simply started making sure they take care of the football, especially in, in critical moments of the game. Even the Chargers game they lost, they, they came back in that game and they had a chance to take the lead. And Joe Mixon fumbled. He never fumbles. He fumbled and it got scooped up, taken in for a score for the Chargers. And the rest was history in that one. So they just made a concerted effort to start taking care of the ball, especially at critical points in the ball game. Speaking to George Vogel, uh, sports anchor with uh, the uh, NBC affiliate in Cincinnati. George, speak of Joe Burrow, and never has the position of quarterback been so important in, in the NFL because of now the new rules about how they're protected, how wide receivers are protected. You just mm-hmm. have to have an elite quarterback. As I said, two years ago, Zach Taylor's got a 2-14 and 14 record, and then they go out and draft Joe Burrow. And from that point on, it didn't happen straight away, but in two years they've been able to get to a Super Bowl. They go and get his college wide receiver, Jamar Chase, that he won a national championship with after he was a Heisman Trophy winner and a number one pick. If they win the Super Bowl, he does. He adds that to that resume, and nobody's ever done that, all those four things in a career before. But talk to us about the impact that Joe Burrow has had, not just on probably Zach Taylor's career, because he saved it, uh, with all due respect to Zach, but but to the to the team, the franchise, right. and the city. Oh, yes, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he owns the place right now. He is the man. Everyone sees him as the man, and he's only in his second year in the NFL. But uh, you, you hit the nail on the head about the quarterback being so important these days. You look at the successful teams and the teams that go somewhere in the playoffs, they've got a quarterback that can do it, a quarterback that can lift the team up and make the big plays in the big moments. Joe Burrow does that, and I I don't know that I've ever seen a guy come into the city of Cincinnati and take it over as quickly as Joe Burrow did. Even his rookie year when he got hurt, you saw flashes. You saw in the very first game he played against the Chargers, his rookie season, he brought them back and actually – a lot of people thought he won the game with a pass to A.J. Green in the final seconds of the end zone, but A.J. was called for pass interference. A lot of people still argue that call to yep. this day that it wasn't. But at any rate, Burrow showed the moxie then that he could do it at the NFL level, and he has just uh, taken the town by storm as much as anyone you can think of that comes in and wins the hearts of uh, a fan base. He has done that. And, look, the Bengals did. They only won two games. That put them in position to draft Joe Burrow the way the NFL draft works. You know, the worst team gets the first pick. 
They got the first pick. It was Joe Burrow. Then they only win four games. They're in position to draft Jamar Chase, and they were able to get their hands on him. And the NFL likes it to work that way, where the poor teams can get better quickly through the draft, and so they get to go first in the draft. And, boy, it worked out so well for the Bengals to get those two who played together at the collegiate level, know each other so well, and now here they are. And no one would have predicted it happening this quickly, but we did feel that in the next few years the Bengals would be at this level. They just beat everybody's expectations. There's a story on ESPN today about – how they weren't on the same page at the start of the year preseason. They just couldn't quite connect, and they stayed after training and had long discussions. They they continued just to work together. It would seem that those you always find out those little kinds of stories about teams and about players, about what it takes to, to get to the top, and it is those extra sessions, those extra meetings, that, that extra time. So it would appear that not only does he have all the swagger, um, and and all the style we're used to seeing now, Joe Cool, but he's got the work ethic as well. He's a worker. Yes, he is. He, he's totally a worker. In fact, you know, he, he told the guys, look, you know, a lot of teams are going to lay out and, and, you know, skip some of the off-season workouts that, that they usually schedule. And Joe Burrow told the team, we only won four games last year, guys. We got to get better. We should show up for these. And every man did. And Jamar Chase should get a lot of credit, too. He had some, some cases of the drops in training camp and, and in the preseason games. And, you know, he worked to get better. So, um, you know, you got to give him credit for his work ethic as well. But it does start with Joe Burrow, no doubt about it. He's the leader. And all these guys are more than willing to put in the work because they have. George, I've got to let you go. Um, but how do they get it done? In L.A., against L.A., this Rams side has – taken on some pretty big opponents and, and lived to tell the tale as well. Matt Stafford's in uh, a career-best vein of form, and they've got stars everywhere you look. How do they get the job done? Got to keep Joe Burrow standing up and keep that defensive line off of him. They've got some real good players on that defensive line. You know, they got Aaron Donald. They got Von Miller. Uh, they've got the linebacker that comes off the edge that, that gets it done. So uh, they the offensive line definitely has to play better and keep him upright so he can actually have a chance to get it to Jamar Chase and Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins. I've got to let you go, George. Thank you so much. Keep an eye out for our man, uh, Jared Waitley. Uh, there's a, a very ro- a very roguish type called Campbell Brown. If you see him on Radio Row, stay well clear. Uh, you, you'll have a night that you'll never remember <laughs> or never forget, all in equal measure. But enjoy. Thank you so much for you and the people in Cincinnati. I hope it's a really special occasion. Enjoy. We appreciate that from the land down under. Thank you very much. George Vogel been covering the Cincinnati Bengals as a, a sports anchor for the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati since before they were in their last Super Bowl in 1989. So nobody knows that franchise in that city as well as he. Uh, we'll hopefully catch up with him uh, after the Super Bowl on Monday. We'll be playing in the Super Bowl. It'll be live on SEN. Jared Waitley's over there. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald Sr. as well. Can't wait for it. Hey, we'll get the LA perspective uh, in a moment from a man and the national perspective from a man that you'd know if you watch SportsCenter on ESPN. Uh, his name is John K. Anderson. He's going to join me shortly. But uh, if you wanted to, if if you've if you're a passionate NFL person, I mean, I know it's American sport, and you might be listening, going, "Who gives a stuff about the Yanks?" And I understand all that. 
but it is the biggest sporting one-off sporting event in the world, the Super Bowl. So if you want to have a chat about it, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Give us a bell. I just got the scan then, um, so yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. But fingers crossed. I don't know. The emotions right now? Uh, a little bit, but um, it's settled a bit. I mean, that's just footy. Get injured, so it's all part of it. Ben King, after injuring himself in a marking contest uh, match simulation on the Gold Coast today, that will be the most nervous weight of any side that they're having at the moment. If he's out for the year, what does that mean for the Suns, and what does it mean for his future at the Suns? So plenty to play out there for Ben King. Uh, looks like the Kings are going to get home safely at John Kane Arena. 84-90, the Kings lead with six seconds left. Ryan Brokoff's had a, a season-best game with 25 points. Xavier Cook's his MVP caliber season continues. He had 23 for the Sydney Kings. Jarrell Martin had uh, 19, or Jalen Martin, sorry, had 19. And Mitch Creek had 23 points and six rebounds for the South East Melbourne Phoenix. I don't know if we've tweeted this out, but Carlton have just released their clash strip uh, for the season. It is very white. It is like White King, I think, will be sponsoring this. It is all white with a bit of navy blue trim around the sleeve and around the, the, the collar. And then even the uh, the Carlton FC logo is just a blue outline with all white. White shorts, blue socks, which is interesting. But if you're a Carlton fan and you've had a look at the clash strip, it is iridescent white. That's going to take some cleaning. I would hate to be the property steward at Carlton for this year um, because that is a pristine-looking uh, uniform. I mean, the umpires are going to have to wear a different colour, which we know that they do. But, yeah, if you've got a thought on the uh, the uh, clash strip for Carlton, I wouldn't mind hearing it. A lot of talk today about the AFLW season. So it's having a really rough year. COVID wreaking havoc, which has made it even worse because the semi-professional competition. The players have jobs and, and families um, that they have to try and juggle. And every time a game gets cancelled, it throws their lives in a disarray. Not only that, we're making them play in the middle of summer, which originally I thought was a good idea. But when I thought it was a good idea that the AFL had this, AFLW had this airspace, I would not have thought in a million years that we'd be getting them to play in the middle of the day. I mean, that might be the dumbest decision that I think I've seen and, and one of the most cruel decisions. And Daisy Pierce has spoken about how difficult it's been. She said it's horrendous playing, uh, you know, 30-plus degree days. Surely those games have to be played uh, at night. So there's a lot being discussed. It's the five-year anniversary of AFLW this week. It's in its sixth season. There is a lot that needs to be sorted out with it. Uh, Lily Mithen, uh, D superstar, was asked where the AFLW games should be played. It's interesting too because I guess um, it's nice to play in a big stadium where you can sort of block out a bit of wind and pack out stadiums. But mm. I think at the moment when our crowds probably aren't as big as you know, men's obviously, we're not going to pack out an MCG and have 70, 80, 90,000 people there. So you do lose atmosphere in those big venues where it becomes a bit vast with only sort of five to 10,000 people at each game. So I do like going back to more of those traditional grounds like Uvic Parks and your Witten Ovals and, and grounds like that that do have sentimental value. So that's more about, uh, I should have listened to that first. That, I thought that was about where in the, where the season should be played, where the game should be played at what point of the year. Uh, but that's Lily Mithen talking about where they play the games. And she loves the suburban grounds, which I think we all enjoy the romanticism of that. And it is the great place for the AFLW to play at the moment. But we certainly shouldn't be having them play in 30 plus degree heat in the middle of the day. 
16 aside, full-size grounds. They've got to cover the extra Ks. Semi-professional athletes playing in the most grueling conditions that you can play in with a sport like AFL is. I mean, that's just, that is just that is just an exercise in cruelty, I, I would have thought. So it is a credit to those players and a credit to those clubs that they front up the way that they do and put in the way that they do. So I'm thinking that that would contribute to some of the lower scores this year. Obviously, the defensive structures have improved out of sight, which, you know, we would hope that for the betterment of the spectacle that coaches would prioritise offence over defence. Uh, but at the moment, a lot of factors contributing to the, the average scores being lower. The standard of footy is better than it has been, but the, the scores are are a little bit of a concern uh, this year. So if you've got a view on uh, the AFLW and uh, how this season is tracking, great article by Mark Robinson today and an even better one by Lauren Wood uh, on the Herald Sun website. She addresses the, the top five issues that uh, the AFLW is facing in terms of standard expansion, um, the revenue, the strain on the players, um, the uh, the pay the injuries, COVID, so it's well worth a read. Uh, Going to be back with John Anderson on the other side of this to talk more Super Bowl on the Sporting Capital. Well, we've spoken a little bit about the Cincinnati side of things for this Super Bowl. We had the pleasure of having George Vogel on a little earlier, scn.com.au, to hear the full chat. Um, but we want to get more of the LA scope and the, and the national scope on how this Super Bowl is shaping up in the US. And there's no better to speak to than a man who's been at the helm of Sports Center 11 to 1 for a very long time now. Uh, he's an encyclopedia of all things US sport. Uh, his name is John K. Anderson. He's been good enough to jump on the line with us, John. Hello to you. Thank you so much for some time that you've been able to spare for us. Um, how is this week shaping up Super Bowl? There's no bigger time of the year in the U.S. No, it is. It is. Uh, it's as close as we have to a national holiday that's not actually a national <laughs> holiday. You know, they have pushed before that they said they should just make the Monday after because we we, we celebrate every national holiday on Mondays. Regardless of when it is, we observe it on that Monday so we can have the long weekend, whether it's President's Day or or Labor Day or Memorial Day, and people are like, everybody spends their time in this. Half of them are hungover. Work productivity on Monday is a mess. Just give everybody Monday off. We'll be better as a country. Um, I, I, listen, I'd go for that. That's fine. Uh, but it is, uh, it is a really um, – it's a, it's a big time of the year. We don't have another event that will draw the eyeballs of 60 to 70% of all viewing Americas. Americans. It just there's no other there's no other show, no other product, no other event that can do that uh, than the NFL Super Bowl. Except for Sports Center, eleven to one, of course. <laughs> I wish. Yes, that would be great. Uh, John, before we talk a little bit more about LA, have you got a sense and a feel of where the hearts and minds of the passive fan for this Super Bowl? Uh, leaning towards. I mean, obviously, it's 1989, the last time that the Bengals were even in a Super Bowl. They've never won one. For the Rams, um, this is their second time as LA, their fourth iteration, I think, starting as Cleveland and then going yeah. to LA and then going to St. Louis, where they won in 99, and then now back to LA. Who, who's who got the hearts and minds of the rest of America going into there? Who's the sentimental favourite? I think you'd find, and you said you spoke with, uh, with a fellow in Cincinnati, uh, I think Cincinnati has got. I we just I think we like the underdog mm. um, uh, for the most part, and that's the easiest way to go. And while LA is really good, and it's nice that they're there, and they're a bit of a um, not necessarily an underdog, but 
with Matthew Stafford, who had a lot of fans from Detroit because he lost so many years, and people, uh, it's a team that's really likable. Uh, I do think there's some folks that are like, listen, uh, especially if you're in Connecticut like I am, like I'm cold. It's 32 degrees. I just did a sto- I did a, did a, sh- a show with a fellow from LA, and he was complaining that it was 91 and a little too windy playing golf today. And so, quite frankly, we're just in a disposition everybody that's mostly under snow cover that i don't think i need to like those guys for the reasons of this uh and i think they are always sentimental favorites for the underdog and so i think by and large if you just said to a person hey who do you have i'm i think i'm gonna go with joe burrow i'm gonna go with the bengals again kind of a likable group and la seems to have enough they've got stars and hollywood and Disneyland, and I don't necessarily think they need a Lombardi trophy. <laughs> and they've been winning. I mean, the Dodgers have been winning. The Lakers won a couple of years ago, so they're not without recent success, whereas Ohio, it's been a while since LeBron uh, hoisted up uh, that trophy. <laughs> uh, so um, when it comes to L.A., it's, it seems like for, for every other sport, LA's been a dream and a happy hunting ground for for the Lakers, uh, for the Dodgers, uh, for 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 so mm-hmm. many other organisations. But football has had a very strange existence in LA, hasn't it? Like the Raiders were there and then they weren't there, and then now you've got the Chargers back there and the Rams have now back there for the second time. Why is it that football seems to maybe struggle in LA? Well, I, I don't know that it's L.A. proper, honestly. I believe it, it just goes down to owners who went money hunting. Mm. Um, when they originally came out from Cleveland, uh, that was the trend. As as you mentioned, You know, the Dodgers had come out and the Giants had come out and gone to San Francisco, and it was seen as sort of um, um, this golden land, uh, as so many people did, right? The land of opportunity and the land of success and, and sort of uh, um, milk and honey and, and gold. And then L.A., they, you know, they left here, excuse me, I left, they left Los Angeles to St. Louis just because they got a sweetheart deal. So they got more money. And then when they didn't get as quite a nice deal as they wanted in St. Louis, and in that case really it was the city not doing some things they had promised, well, then there was L.A. ready to welcome them back with, the, with money. And their owner, who oddly enough was a Missourian, and everybody thought, oh, he's a home guy. He'll never leave it, move it from the state of Missouri. Uh, was more than happy to go back because he realized there was all kinds of money to be made. So, yes, they have been a bit nomadic, but it's like most of these L.A. teams. If you just follow the money, that's where it is. And so they, you know, Oakland didn't pay, so they went to L.A. And suddenly when L.A. couldn't pay up again, they went back to Oakland. And and when Oakland couldn't pay up again, now they went to Vegas. So um, I don't know that that's the case. I know with for a while there was just no way to move a team back there. They were just kind of frozen out. Um, the the NFL at the time was down to an even number of franchises, so it would have been hard to add just one just to put a team in L.A. Um, so they didn't really have a partner. So there were a lot of reasons that I think it didn't it didn't um, find its way back there. And like anything, uh, people in L.A. found out they could do other things. Uh, for the longest time, UCA, USC football was hot. You know, the uh, the local university was mm. winning national championships, and they became the story. And quite frankly, if you've ever been to LA, there's a lot of stuff to do there on Sunday. Besides, yeah. you know, uh, going to an NFL game. Right, the beach is nice. The mountains are close. You can do a lot of things there. And so it's different than if you say you're from my hometown in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where there's only a hundred thousand people, and the Packers aren't there on Sunday. There's not a lot to do. Believe me. After I've mown my lawn, I don't know what else is going on. 
And so um, L.A. has enough where I don't think they missed it. So it's a curious relationship, but I don't know that it is L.A. didn't like football. L.A. didn't want football. I think it was owners sort of mistreating uh, L.A. in the market. So with what they've done now, and obviously given all those changes, they haven't had a Super Bowl for any of their teams since 83 when the Raiders were there. Mm-hmm. So they, so the owner, Stan Kroenke, builds billion-dollar stadium. It's phenomenal, and that's where the Super Bowl yeah. is going to be played, as we know. But in, And then they went to the draft. They tried the build. Sean McVay comes in, the, the boy wonder coach, um, Thirty, I think he's 36 years of age. And then it seemed like they made a decision to go, okay, we're an LA team trying to do maybe what they're doing in like those traditional football markets. We're trying to do this build and have, you know, the, 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 the proper kind of program. They've scrapped that. They've given up all their tra- the draft <laughs> capital. They've said, give us stars. Yeah. So we get Matthew Stafford. You bring OBJ in, Odell Beckham Jr., one of the most uh, no- recognisable figures in football. Um, Aaron Donald came in a few years ago. Uh, Cooper Cup, obviously, has been there for a while now. But you get Jalen Ramsey. They, they stacked it with A-list. They stacked it with stars who are also celebrities. Yeah. They did what LA – they're an LA team, aren't they now? I think you've hit that perfectly. Yeah, they, they kind of match the city. Mm. Um, if Ohio is – and people like Ohio or Cleveland – or Pittsburgh in our Rust Belt um, are gritty and hardworking and just, you know, go out there with your lunch pail and, and don't complain and, and put the yoke on and work. LA is like that. Yeah, we need stars. We need people that are identifiable. We want this thing to be a great place to go. It needs to be a, far, uh, a party. It needs to have that LA vibe. They've done that. Um, I don't think there, there people can go ahead and you can build – uh, through the draft and hopefully your PR, your, 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 uh, uh, your, your development people mm. and your drafting people and your personnel people have, have hit the right guys. The other option is, if you're close, to go ahead and do that. And I think that's what L.A. did. They drafted well with an Aaron Donald. Uh, and they've had some key pieces. And they, you know, they did all right with Jared Goff and got to a Super Bowl. And so now they've tasted it and like, okay, how do we get closer? How do we not waste Aaron Donald's years when we're this close? And while those draft things are um, valuable in the league today with free agency, um, you can move around a little bit. And so maybe that first round draft pick, especially if you're good where you're drafting 28, 29, 30, it's never a top five pick. It's never a top 10 pick. Um, Those maybe don't have the value. And you're like, here, we'll let the lions have a couple of those because I can get Matthew Stafford and I can make a difference. Um, I, they got Von Miller, quite frankly, on the cheap. They mm. got Odell Beckham. They took a gamble there on the cheap. And you got a guy that had um, had his time to shine in New York and then realized, listen, I'd like to win again. I, I think yeah. that's important. And all the flash is – it's funny, right, because that's the opposite of L.A. Um, but all that flash, all that notoriety hasn't made me a champion. Everybody just goes, look at that guy. He's discontented. Um, so there's been a bit of a nice convergence on some of those things. Jalen Ramsey, they did spend heavily on he and yeah. Stafford. That's where they spent a lot of those things. Uh, but those are the two most important things I think you can have is you got to have a good corner uh, because the way the game's played now, and you got to have a quarterback who can throw it. Air Donald's nice. You want to put pressure on him, obviously. But those are really key things. And if you're that close and you know you have sort of that window of opportunity everybody talks about, uh, I think it's, it was a smart play them for them to splash. And the other thing is if you win one of those, 
then people are willing to sit through a rebuild for a year or two that may only be eight and eight or might be seven and nine. Um, I need to readjust my numbers, right? Because we've gone to 17 <laughs> games now. So it could be eight and nine or nine sure. and eight, and six and 11. Um, you know, they won't last forever, but they're willing to kind of trade that to go, okay, we've done it. Uh, we've got our championship. And like you said, with the, like the Lakers, uh, like the Dodgers, the Kings in the last decade have won two Stanley Cups. They're like, we want our parade too. Um, so I don't necessarily think they have spent unwisely or mortgaged the future um, in a bad way, because I think if they win this, um, then that will be worth it. And if there are some lean years to follow somewhere down the line, paying the, uh, you know, paying the piper as it were, I, I think we have shown anyway uh, recently that that's worth it. We're willing to take that one championship if the trade-off is we've got, we've got a year or two there where we're not in the fight. Uh, we're speaking to John Anderson, ESPN Sports Center host, uh, eleven to one. And the smart thing about that is too that because they're, they're still trying to rebuild that fan base, and there's no better way to do it. Everyone loves a winner, so they'll jump on that bandwagon, quick smart, and with all the celebrity endorsement and everything like that, it's, it's a clever way uh, to do it. John, where's this game won and lost for you between these two teams? Do you think? Yeah, I think it's always humorous. Um, there'll be a six hour or more pregame show <laughs> every Sunday yes. here. There's a three hour pregame show. Yeah. And I think they should last three minutes because <laughs> whoever controls the line of scrimmage, who can run it better and who doesn't make turnovers will win the game mm. there. Now, somehow we got to stretch that into six hours <laughs> or three hours. Um, but that's where it is. And if and I think if Aaron Donald and Vaughn Miller can wreak havoc up front, um, I think they have enough offensively that they take care of business. But that, that to me is it. If you, if you can't handle that, and I worry some about the Bengals' offensive line. My goodness, they gave up nine sacks to Tennessee. Um, they were able to overcome that because mm. I don't necessarily think Ryan Tannehill in Nashville is a terrific quarterback. I think Matthew Stafford will make them pay for that, and, yep. and they won't be able to just kind of um, sack a guy nine times, punt it, and get off the field. Um, so I think like most games, that's where it is. Uh, but in this case, it's a little more because the big stars for L.A., their defense is here's Miller can come off the edge. Uh, Donald can, even if he's not getting to the quarterback, which he usually does, he's still going to take up two guys, sometimes a third guy in the line. And the best player for Cincinnati at offense, um, aside from Burrow, who they'll hopefully pressure, is Jamar Chase. And if you can take a guy like Jalen Ramsey and lock him down on it, you've made things really, really hard on the Bengals. Um, that said, I have bet against them at every single stop so far and have managed to come up empty. Um, and so they have, they have shocked, but I, I, I really believe that that's, that's too much. I think that just down where all these things are, are decided where guys just still just try to butt heads and who can impose their will, who has more force. I think down in the line there in those front sevens, uh, I like Los Angeles there. Uh, John, I can't let you go with asking you two more questions, please. Um, the first is, if my memory serves, you were the host of a TV show called Wipeout for a, f- for a <laughs> fairly long time. Am I right? I was indeed. Yes. Yeah. With a very good friend. Yes, with a great friend and really funny person named John Anson. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what is That show is always fascinating to me that people would be willing to put themselves through that. Um, and for those who don't know the show Wipeout, it's essentially uh, just a, a theme park-sized obstacle course where the idea is that you will end up 
flipping head over a, a over T into a, a pool of water somewhere, getting knocked over by a street. It's, it's like Ninja Warrior mm-hmm. for people that aren't Ninja Warriors. <laughs> What's your funniest memories it of that is. show? Uh, well, one working with, with John Henson, who was just tremendously funny. And there were times I felt bad because he would say some of the funniest things. And I'd either break the take or we'd do it and I'd make it into the to, you know, to safe zone where I could break up laughing. And then some poor fella, sometimes it was a little old lady, would come around the corner and say, um, you can't say that on TV. Standards and practices, <laughs> you might be able to do it on SportsCenter on cable at midnight or from 11 to 1, uh-huh. but you can't say it on Thursday at 8 o'clock. So that was some of it. Uh, it was just a tremendous show to watch. It was great because the contestants were there. You thought they had some uh, modicum of ability athletically, or it was some loony bird or some average housewife. They all had the same chance, uh, which I totally enjoyed that. And then my favorite part is I never once had to actually run the course. <laughs> and years ago, I was covering the U.S. Open. Yeah. And Paul Azinger, who's been a Ryder Cup captain and who has won the PJ Championship, and he said to me, he goes, you ever run that thing? And I said, no. And he goes, okay, so I don't get it. How You shouldn't be able to commentate on that <laughs> if you've never run the course. And I said, Paul, I'm, gonna, I'm sitting here with you this week, and we're going to call the U.S. Open. And the USJ has yet to let me play in this championship, mm. but I'm going to get to call it. So have your way. If you let me play here in the U.S. Open, I'll go run the course. <laughs> but if not, then I feel like we're even. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair trade-off. Uh, John, last Correct. question. Last question for me before I let you go. You're a Green Bay man. You were born uh, and raised there. Aaron Rodgers, one of the most polarizing figures in. Uh, in professional football at the moment. Is he suiting up in the green and yellow again next year? And if not, where's he headed for you? Boy, that is really, I mean, that is not just, it's funny, as big as uh, it is a big question in Green Bay and it's all consuming. It is really the biggest question in the National Football League right now, Mm. outside of who wins Sunday, is people are baffled. And he is a guy that I have no idea. I like to think that they have repaired the, and this is me trying to divorce myself <laughs> from my Green Bay Packers season tickets that I hold, even though I can't go because uh-huh. I live 1,200 miles from Lambeau Field. Um, I do think that they have repaired their relationship enough that there's been some trust rebuilt there. I do think that at his age, he realizes that to go start anywhere, even if they say he, you go to a contender, if you go to a place that's that could win Denver. They have enough people as where one of these places. Uh, that's still a big ask because Tom Brady, they didn't want anymore. And this is a different situation. Everybody in the Packers would like him back and they've all done all they can to show him that. Um, so I do think I held out and I thought, no, I think he's going to play with the Packers last year. And he did. And so I think he either chooses to come back uh, or I think he shuts it down. I really do. And if he doesn't, I don't I don't know where he lands because I'm not really sure what the market ask is for him. I don't think you can get what you got from Matthew Stafford. He doesn't have that many years left. Um, so it's crazy. And so, again, maybe that is me unable to see through my green and gold glasses and just hoping beyond hope. Although I feel like 35 years in this business, I've sort of divorced myself from those things and can see it clearly. So I do think, I think it's his best option to come back. Um, and I think he is a smart guy and he will operate that. I don't think he runs on a whim. And I think when he looks at it, he's going to go, this is the place for me. 
and they're going to give me two years and they're going to give me 85, 90 million dollars. I can live with that and spend my whole career there in Green Bay. John K. Anderson has been absolutely wonderful. A real treat to have you on. Thank you so much for making the time. Enjoy the Super Bowl. I will do that. And remember, you promised me I could come back on again. Well, I'm going to call you. Sure. And you are going to help me talk about all the great athletes that I cover down there that ran as U.S. collegians or I got to see in Tokyo that I think were uh, amazing. It was a great Summer Olympics for the athletics team there for Australia. And so someday we'll talk about that because I love the Super Bowl and I know the NFL, but the runners are my guys or my gals, depending if you got McDermott. Um, and I want to sit and just take notes like she does after every jump. Let's do it. Let's do it. Be my pleasure. Thank you so much. Cheers. John Anderson, the host of Sports Center. What a treat to have him on. Uh, he's an absolute ripper. You see him every night uh, on ESPN doing the uh, 11 to 1 slot over there. Uh, very generous with his time. Uh, great to have a chat to him. The Super Bowl, you won't miss a moment of that action on Monday. Jared Waitley, Larry Fitzgerald Sr., I uh, cannot wait for that as well. Hey, uh, on the other side of this, as we wrap it up, I'm going to explain to you how Max Gorn has called game on this week. Max Gorn has just won the week. I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, big thanks to Emad for the really lovely text that he just sent through. Emad, I'd love to read it out, but it's very, very floggish of me if I do. So I just want to acknowledge your lovely text, mate. I appreciate that. Thank you very, very much. Uh, 0433981116. Thanks to all the temper texts. Temper a mattress like no other. Uh, I told you that I'm going to explain how Max Gorn's called game uh, on this week. Max Gorn wins. The week Now, obviously, everything that's been happening in the news, uh, the stories uh, from Mick Warner and the Herald Sun uh, in regards to Simon Goodwin and previous concerns of former president and doctor, bullying, all that kind of stuff. You know the story. I don't need to rehash it again. Max Gorn came out really publicly yesterday and said, I will continue to have a beer with my boss at our local. Today, on his Instagram, he, Simon Goodwin, in front of a Hotel Sorrento sign with... I'm guessing the bloke that owns it. I don't think the photo's taken from today. At Hotel Sorrento, and it just says, planning 2022 at the local. <laughs> that is some elite trolling. from, And I don't, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. That is Max Gorn winning the week. That's very funny. Regardless of what you think of the story, and yes, there's very serious elements to it, Max Gorn has just won the week. He's called game, set, and match. Um, early villain nomination is going to be to the AFL for continuing to let the AFLW players have to play in 34-plus degree heat. But we'll have to speak about that another time. Enjoy the rest of your night. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.